For those of you who don't know, Aaron Rodgers is the Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, coming off two back-to-back MVP seasons in the NFL. He's literally at the top of his sport. But that's not the reason why he's here. He's here because he's one of the most thoughtful, loving, and service-oriented individuals that I've ever had the pleasure to meet. Over this past year, we've developed an extremely close friendship, and I've gotten to understand the man behind the myth that is Aaron Rodgers, and I'm excited for him to share his story here, a story that discusses his own challenges with self-love, his own challenges with negative self-talk, and how he's utilized plant medicine, particularly ayahuasca, to help support his mental health so he can be a better player, a better man, and a better leader for his team on and off the field. He also gets the opportunity to share the truth about his real sentiments on topics like the pandemic, which drew a lot of attention last year, and just express really who he is behind all of the projections that the media might share about him. This is the real Aaron Rodgers. And this is our real friendship, full of, at minimum, 42% shit talking, as brothers do. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with Aaron Rodgers. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Fit for Service. Now, Fit for Service is just coming off our donation-based festival, Arcadia. It was an unbelievable experience. We had over 1,200 people out at Area 15 in Las Vegas, and it was truly a magical experience. And we learned a lot of things with our donation-based model, and I'll talk about some of those because we have our new Sedona Summit coming up in October this year. Now, Sedona Summit, we've been doing this. This is our fourth year is always the crown jewel of the FFS program. It's our second major core summit, and we got a packed lineup. We have Layla Martin, who you might know from several podcasts that we've done, which is really one of the leaders in the reclamation of sacred sexuality. We have Dr. Dan Engel, one of the top psychedelic-focused doctors who's going to be giving a presentation. We have Guy Sengstock, also another podcast guest who's doing a workshop on circling to help us integrate. We have Parangi offering an ecstatic dance. We have all of our coaches. We have Pia doing a musical performance. We have myself and Vailana offering workshops. It's going to be truly incredible out set amongst the majestic red rocks of Sedona. So if you're interested, please apply at fitforservice.com and you'll find the way to navigate to our Sedona program. So learning from that experience, what we've decided to do to make sure that we can actually fill Sedona because there's limited spots available is we've set up an anti-model, which is basically a refundable gift or refundable donation that secures your spot. So when you go to apply, this is what you'll see. You'll see that there is an anti, a gift that you can always get back that secures your spot in Sedona to make sure that we're actually serving all of the people that we can for this final summit of Fit for Service. Thank you so much to everybody who's been a part of Fit for Service this year. We're looking forward to ending with the best one yet. Once again, fitforservice.com. Next up, we have On It. Now, when Aaron came out for the podcast and when we're doing our workouts or doing our work, we're both taking a bunch of On It products. And one of those is Alpha Brain Black Label. There's not a podcast that I do that I do not take Alpha Brain Black Label. Same for Joe Rogan, same for so many people who really wanna be able to put their words and thoughts together in the most fluid way. And also, 
the training supplements like Shroom Tech Sport and Total NO and all of the great products we have both for sports performance and mental performance. So make sure you check that out. Also, we got new protein bites, which are unbelievable. The cookies and cream protein bites with over 50 different plant ingredients. We got a s'mores protein bite that are still low glycemic, so not a bunch of sugar. There's a little bit of sugar in there, but not a bunch of sugar, really healthy plant proteins and grass-fed whey, as well as all of those different plant ingredients. And they taste absolutely delicious. We also have all our kettlebells, our primal bells, our steel clubs, our steel maces, so a whole fitness equipment suite. So make sure you check all of this out. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on everything. And last up, I just want to draw some attention to the new documentary that we have called El Dragon de la Selva, The Dragon of the Jungle, which is a little mini documentary about my very first shaman, Maestro Orlando Chuhandama of the Quechua tradition and the epic retreats that we've been having, retreats that include this week's podcast guest, Aaron Rodgers. So make sure you check that out. It's at youtube.com slash Aubrey Marcus pod. It's for free and you'll find it as the featured video if you head there. Once again, that's youtube.com slash Aubrey Marcus pod. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Aaron Rodgers. So we're here today because you have a very special announcement, a great achievement that you want to share with the world. And I just thought it was the moment that you could share this, that you beat me in uh one-on-one last night was not the first time <laughs> set the record straight let the record show it was you know somewhat surprising but nonetheless here we are and a lot of the chances. world needs to know a lot of chances <laughs> a lot of chances i'm just so glad it wasn't the other way around because you are not the best winner <laughs> <laughs> i mean i have so much experience <laughs> I would think that. That's surprising. <laughs> you're right. Because you act like it's the first time you've ever won something. You know, whenever you, the rare occasion where you beat me. Uh, man, here we are. Can't believe it. Yeah. This is, uh, this is something that not a lot of athletes do when they're in their fucking prime. Like, this is kind of a, a new thing. And, um, What's the what is what's the reason that you wanted to come on and because we're gonna, I mean I know you well we've gotten to be really close friends and from battling on the basketball court to all kinds of adventures through the cosmos. But we're gonna get in here. We're gonna tell the truth. We're gonna talk about everything that's on our minds and on our hearts. And uh, and not a lot of athletes do that when they're playing. So you know what's what's the reason that you're sitting here today. Well, I think that if I can do anything today and through going on the Pat McAfee show and some of the interviews I've done the last couple of years is to continue to give out a permission slip for people to be unapologetically themselves. And it's not the norm, I would say, all the time in professional sports. There's uh, ideas out there about just shut up and dribble or shut up and stay on the field or mm-hmm. just kind of keep your opinions to yourself. Just talk to me about football, entertain me, and that's all That's all I want. But there's also narratives out there uh, for all of us that uh, that can run sometimes. And it's nice to be able to take back some of the narrative and let people kind of see uh, beyond the veil 
uh, into who I am, what I'm about. And as much as uh, it's extremely liberating for me, I think it also is a permission slip for other people, hopefully, to feel comfortable embracing their truth and living their best life, whatever that looks like, and stepping into their own power. And I think that's what the journey has been for me the last, really my life and my career in the NFL. It's as the self-love has increased, the fears about the um, how it's uh, recepted by people, um, how it's received, just continues to dwindle. And I just care more about uh, being authentically myself to hopefully allow people to step into their own authenticity and and live out their own name story. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting thing because self-love is certainly a piece and also a, a self-knowing, which is very similar to love because if you really know yourself, you'll know yourself as love, mm. right? You'll know the substrate of the universe is love and you participating in the universe are love and you'll know yourself as love and you'll know yourself. So that really helps because when people lob different insults or attacks that are absolutely patently false, you know, you won't be shaken by them. And then, because oftentimes it's those things that maybe you're a little insecure about that someone picks on, those are the ones that really hurt, you know, and those are the opportunity. That's where everybody's actually doing us a service. If they point out something that's in our shadow that we can take a look at, mm -hmm. you got to applaud that. But as painful as it as, as it could be, it's like, all right, that's great. But then there's also another aspect of a sense of injustice that can come even when you know something is like absolutely false. And that I think is something even different than self-love because self-knowledge and self-love will protect you from a lot of those things, the doubting of yourself when someone says something that isn't true, that is a lot of the pain. But the other thing is this sense of like, why are you doing this? Like, what is, I, I don't understand. You know, that can be also hard. It can, it can also shape your kind of love for humanity itself to be attacked for no reason. 100%. I think that's the, that's, you hit on that. It's the injustice of the false narrative that, that can get to you. And, and as humans, you, I don't think you can ever be 100% immune from criticism or critique kind of entering your heart and soul. But the ones that that kind of maybe stick with you are the patent lies or falsehoods or narratives about you that just aren't true. Mm -hmm. And there's been, you know, there's there's always ones about all of us, but there's been some that, you know, just stick with you a little bit more than others that it's nice the last few years to really dispel some of those myths, I think, um, through talking and then through, you know, other people also sharing stories um, about me, about interactions, about my leadership style, about uh, what's important to me. And I've, I've really appreciated those. But the freedom I've gotten from speaking more about what's important to me is um, really unsurpassed. Yeah. The interesting aspect of it, too, is that, you know, ultimately, while your career in football certainly is you living your name story and you actually doing something that you fucking love and it's awesome for you, but it's actually awesome for everybody. 
like an athlete that plays and everybody gets to watch and care whether you hate that person or you love that person, like you're welcome. You're fucking welcome. <laughs> like how, I mean, I don't think people understand that everybody, no matter who it is, like if you care, I mean, the best fighters, you know, have this kind of notorious aspect, this edge, you know, like Floyd or Connor or, or you know, a lot of these people. Tyson, that get, yeah. yeah, all of these people that get people really excited. There's like this edge where some people love them, some people hate them. But they're going to tune in and watch. But they're going to tune in and they're going to care. And like people, the fact that people care is a great service and a great favor. And I think when we get that also internally and say like, oh, I'm getting you to care. You're welcome. Because we really do want to care. Totally. And and I think that's the beauty in you know, in our in in the sports world, the entertainment world, is that so many people are so heavily invested in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so they care about not just us playing on the field, but they do truly care about the person behind it, I think, as well. And I think that's one thing I've I've found and and being out and about and and meeting fans whether it's in Lake Tahoe at the golf tournament or or just out and about or in Vegas, you know, on, on different events I've been to or playing the match or whatever it might be, the interaction with the fans has been really meaningful as, as people, it's not just the I like, enjoy watching you play, it's I enjoy, you know, the book club, you know, you're mm -hmm. sharing how important reading has been to you or I enjoyed your stance um, last year during the uh, – uh, during the pandemic or whatever it might be, just those encouraging words as, as people start to see the person behind um, have been great. Now it also makes you polarizing at times as well because uh, there's strong opinions on both sides and I have a lot of love and appreciation for that. But um, I got into football because I love the game. You know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was in me when I was five years old sitting on the floor watching Joe Montana drive the Niners down on the drive against the Cincinnati Bengals. I was dreaming already about doing that myself. And it's through that deep love that my life has been opened up and, and so many opportunities have been given to me through this game and through the platform that I've been given based on the way I've played, gives me the opportunity to, to now talk about other things that are really important to me that I feel like can have an impact on people. And like I said, give people the opportunity, permission slip to, to go out and, and uh, explore themselves. Mm -hmm. By the time I met you, you were already Aaron Rodgers, right? So I didn't get to see the come up. You know, I didn't get to see like what it was because there's a lot of four-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 12-year-olds dreaming about making it to the spot that you're in. But something, something is different in the ones that do versus the ones that don't. Like, what do you think for you were the keys that allowed you to have that vision and actually execute the steps to get there? A lot of the things you can't measure. Um, I have told this story before, but I, I I dreamt about you know being an NFL player, and before that, I dreamt about playing on Saturdays and, and being on TV. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've been a huge sports fan my entire life, and grew up watching. I mean, know, probably even Fridays before that, right? Well, Friday right. for sure. Yeah, being a starting quarterback on a Friday yep. night, playing high school football, and yep. cheerleaders playing in Asgard Yard. Oh, oh yeah. Rocking those horns on my helmet as a, <laughs> as a Pleasant Valley Viking, and um, but I dreamt about playing uh, on Saturdays. And my favorite team growing up was Florida State. A dear, dear friend, Gil, 
played at Florida State in the late seventies, early eighties, and and would come over from time to time and watch games with us. Florida State was, uh, you know, a powerhouse in the nineties and always perennial national championship team. And that's where I wanted to go. And when I went to the combine, the, the point of the story is, I was in the same group with the starting quarterback at Florida State during my time, and we both measured in at six two. I weighed uh, two twenty three. He weighed, I think, two seventeen. We both ran in the four seven range in the forty. We both jumped. That's why I beat you on yeah. the basketball court more often than not. It's, it's like you're just like a little bit slower, you know, like four six four, four seven range. Well, the that's Packers, why that first step just Packers fucking had me goes. at four six six in the clock. Which I love, <laughs> well, you I know, it's just a little bit. Fa- it's a game of fucking millimeters, really, at that point. But I've always felt it's the things you can't measure that separated me: the dedication, the focus, mm. heart, mental toughness physical toughness well that's conditioning uh, for sure growing up and, and the environment you grow up in and, and the focus that you have and there's decision making you know when you have opportunities to you know in high school to wake up early at 6 a.m and go work out or or go out and party on friday you know friday nights saturday nights i was you know waking up early going to work out i was staying after school throwing the football i was yep. always dreaming and projecting myself out i would go in the library during breaks and you know, this is, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they had, uh, you know, the dial-up internet. And, you know, when you're at home, you try to cover up with the pillows so your parents didn't know you are on the internet trying to get on AOL Instant Messenger and <laughs> try not to, you know, yep. tell them what your password was. You uh-huh. could, you know, have conversations with the girls you're trying to talk to. But uh, I would go on these lists and look at Rivals.com, and they had, like, the top 100 quarterbacks in the country and the top 25 quarterbacks and California. I was never on any of those lists. That was the best thing that could have happened to me because I never once had the opportunity to be complacent. Mm-hmm. And each step of the journey, I had a very narrow focus. You know, when I left high school and had zero Division One offers and had the opportunity to go play at Butte Community College, that was my focus. My focus was on being the best player I could be and winning my quarterback battle that I had during training camp and then going out and balling. And then when Jeff Tedford came to on a, on a Monday to our school to watch me and Garrett Cross, our tight end, work out. My focus was be the fucking best I could possibly be and mm-hmm. had the best workout you could possibly imagine that day. And he called me on the way back to Berkeley that night and offered me a scholarship. And then when I got to Cal, my focus was on just being an incredible student athlete and taking care of my business during the 8 to 2, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. with my school and then balling mm-hmm. when I got an opportunity. And and it was just that narrow focus that allowed me to to stay in the moment. And yeah. I dreamt. I think it's important to have dreams. And I had those dreams on the wall. I mean, I had, you know, pictures of my favorite players. And I watched on Sundays. And I studied, you know, studied my favorite quarterbacks. And But I always had that that understanding, I'm, I'm here. And in order to get to over here, I got a long journey. So what are the steps I got to take in order to get there? Um, I always thought one of the, one of the oddest questions that, I've received and I'm sure you receive is like, would you ever have thought that you'd be where you are right now? And it's like, yeah, Definitely. fucking of course. Like how the fuck do you think you're going to get here unless you actually think that you are able to get here? And knowing that it's a real life situation, you have to take all of the steps necessary to get there. Like no one's surprised to be in a successful position. I mean, it's not the fucking lottery. Yeah, sure, lucky breaks can happen. 
different fortuitous occasions can play a part in this of synchronicities, different things. But it's not like, wow, I never would have thought that I would be an NFL quarterback. Of course you would. Yeah, you have a, to. Of course, it's it's self belief, and that's the root of confidence. Um, you know, I say now when I take the field, I expect excellence. Why wouldn't you? You're not going out there to just play good or or be efficient. No, I expect excellence when I step on the field. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing in my life. I expect to excel in what I'm doing because when you develop a level of mastery at one thing, that understanding allows you to take that over to other areas of your life. And it, it, it's not it's not a mindset that you're never satiated, that you're never satisfied with where you're at or what you're doing, but it's a deep desire to exhibit that mastery in other areas of your life. Yep. And so why would I expect anything less than excellence when I know I'm capable of it? Right. That's one thing I've noticed about you through our friendship is, and I think it's something we share in common and probably why why this friendship has been so strong is we have this very similar quality is that whatever we do, we're going to be as we're going to go full out and be as excellent at it as we possibly can. You know, whether, I mean, obviously the basketball games we played don't actually matter, but they matter to us. You know, I'm like, I got fucking hit in the nose yesterday, wiping off blood. Like, let's go, let's fucking, let's go for it. You know what I mean? And, and it's that attitude that I think, carries through and allows you to be excellent in the in the visible areas of life but for you it's you know this similar quality of looking at mastery in in every area whether it's different books you read or different fields of study i mean <laughs> i have a lot of you know female friends that are deeply into astrology it's not ever been my thing but they'll start talking in some kind of casual layman terms and you'll just drop like the fucking third house of Capricorn and like lay some shit out. And they're looking at, I don't even know if that's a thing. (laughs) 10,000. And they'll be looking at you like, oh my God, he knows more about astrology than me. It's It's been cool to see like how multifaceted you are in your understanding of life. And of course that's gotta support you on the field as well. I mean, you're the, best player in the league two years in a row is MVP and people think that's just about fucking throwing balls like you're out there and everywhere you go you have a tire and you fucking tie it up to a tree and just throw balls through the center all day no it's like you're becoming a well-rounded human being and drawing in all of that into yourself which is then allowing you to expand your mental faculties your physical faculties so that you could perform at a really high level 100% I think the the root of of my search for knowledge in all areas is why is is figuring out the why and and i think there's there's this football talk you know a lot the the, you know people get up there motivational talk or coaches you figure out your why you know why are you doing this why do you want to be great that's an important question to ask for sure in football but also in in life and in the acquisition of knowledge so in any endeavor whether it's playing one-on-one against you or learning how to play chess or studying astrology, it's um, what is at the root of this? Why does it work? Why is it important? And what about it can be applicable to my life? And also, why are people who are successful at those things successful? What is it about them? What knowledge do do they know that I don't know that I can acquire? And I think it's that thirst for knowledge that's led me on a path to 
to try and master more than just my sport. But also the care with my sport is to understand why things are successful and then break them down, mm-hmm. simplify them into action steps that I can take to improve. A couple of years ago in, in the 2020 camp, um, and I kind of held on to this the entire year because it was, it was deeply meaningful and also um, I just didn't want to get it out there yet. But I went back and watched old film of myself from 2010 and 11. And I was coming off 2018, I, I uh, uh, had a tibial plateau fracture and a torn MCL in the first game of the year against Chicago. And it stayed with me the entire season, it actually got better than in Detroit. I got tackled from the side weird and re, and re uh, messed up the, uh, the MCL. But in 19, you know, I was still kind of getting back to my fundamentals that I had before that. But in 2020, I was watching this film and something clicked. And I just remembered uh, a thought. It's like a swing thought in golf, like wanting to have one or two swing thoughts. I remembered like a fundamental thought that I used to carry with me that was ingrained in me by Tom Clements, my quarterback coach from when I was a young player, and actually he's back with us now, about the uh, the hitch at the back of the drop and the heaviness at the, at the top of the drop that allows you to throw the ball in rhythm. And I watched that in the morning and went out to practice and we were practicing Lambeau Field and I still remember the play. It was hard play action to the left inside zone and I was throwing a read route which is like a 20-yard stop route to the left and as I was getting under center I was that that film was on my mind and I came up off the back of that and was heavy at the back and had this beautiful hitch and threw just a fucking laser and I'm getting chills now thinking about it because it was so deeply meaningful and and to most people, it'd be like a throwaway story, but to me, it was the most meaningful thing that happened to me, um, and that stuck with me. And I realized it was like all these memories flashed, you know, before my eyes of throws I'd made over the last, at that point, the last twelve years as a starter, and it just clicked. In that moment, everything clicked that I had learned up until that point, and it just kind of came right back to the front of my mind. And I went on to have a fantastic camp, probably the best camp I've had in my career, and went on to have the best, you know, season possibly of my career uh, in 2020 and won MVP. Now there's, we'll get into, there's obviously a lot of other yep, stuff that happened sure. in 2020, but from a pure football standpoint, uh, that moment was was deeply impactful. It's almost like you can get to a point where you're good enough that you can get away with not doing the thing that got you there exactly in the first place and i think that's you see that with fighters you see that with other people you know i think you listen to conor mcgregor early and i don't know conor so i'm just listening to what he was saying but always when his backing for his belief on how good he was hard work hard work hard work i work harder hard work and that gave him the belief and also the training to believe that he was unbeatable and then i think somewhere that fundamental then you start to just believe the end product of that rather than the belief that you're unbeatable because you're going to work harder than everybody then you get the end part which is i'm just unbeatable and he's missing potentially that same work ethic now i don't know for sure but this is just all presumption but you can see that in many aspects where you can just kind of phone it in and forget the every little tiny step that's required and like the simple thing that simple simple idea that you have when you when you step back and like to be heavy right before the moment that you throw and it's like because you can probably throw light on your toes and fucking still 
throw most balls, but it's a difference, you know? It totally is. And I think that's that's the part I'm, I'm most grateful for in my story is it didn't happen until I was, you know, in my 13th year as a starter, you know, this almost complacency that I can do anything on the field. And uh-huh. I still feel like I can. But the realization that what made me great as a young player was an incredible dedication of fundamentals, an incredible understanding of body position at all times. And it didn't just change the way I played, it changed the way I worked. Because I realized in order to do this the way I used to do that, I have to be so incredibly balanced and stable in my lower half. And it changed my workouts. It changed uh, the proprioception stuff that I did and to where I wasn't squatting for years. And now I get under a safety squat bar and I squatted 500 pounds, you know, at, at, at Proactive uh, a month ago, which is unheard of. I mean, for me, I, I you know, I hadn't got a free inv- open invitation for anybody listening to put 505 on the bar and just DM him. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Please, please do. <laughs> That's what I would do. If it'll I could squat it'll, 505, I would for sure. I would, squ- I would squat me. 501. Yeah. I would squat 500.5. Yeah. Just put the clamps on there. There's a little, an extra pound there. And be like, hey, yo. Yeah, you would, you would. (laughs) Then I'd put 502 on there. Fire right back. There it begins. Fire right back. And all of a sudden, our whole lives derail into becoming power lifters. You want to beat the man, you got to out-eat the man. I show up, I'm 270. Vi's like, what happened to you? He's like, don't worry, babe. I'm getting 600. Please don't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go much past that where I'm at right now. Yeah. One of the things, you know, we've we had the chance to take a a really like wildly mind expanding trip to ancient Greece and see all of these ancient sacred sites and see this really holistic view of health in Epidaurus. I think that was something that was really cool to see and and actually parlays into some of the conversations that we're going to have in that when somebody was sick in ancient Greece, and first of all, the reason I was going to tell that story, and then I'll go into the story of Epidaurus, the reason I was going to tell that is the only condition for you saying yes to going to Greece was like, we got to work out every day. I was like, fucking, I got you, man. So like on the top of that boat, when the boat was rocking back and forth and you know, you don't have the best sea legs, let's just say <laughs> you, got, you don't have the best sea <laughs> legs, but nonetheless, the boat's swinging and banging back and forth and we're fucking lifting kettlebells and doing, you know, like skater squats and, and getting <laughs> after it. Yeah. And so that's like, that's like a part of it. It's like the ability to still enjoy life, but still like stay focused on that. And that, that work ethic has been something that I've seen through you and obviously everybody who's great. Like that's like fucking important, you know, it's to be able to hold the balance of both. But to go to Epidaurus, which is another area that I want to talk about, is they had a vastly different view of how to treat the body. And I think this is a universal lesson that applies and something that we've forgotten, like deeply forgotten. And the first place that they started treating was the spirit. You know, you would walk the temple steps and you would connect to, I think we think of the gods in literal terms, but I think they actually understood them as, you know, divine energies, like the healing sun energy, the Christ-like energy of Apollo and, and all of these other deities and find yourself in both humility and participation in the divine spirit like that was first and then they had different psycho spiritual technologies like catacombs that were dark in different places 
and then they moved from the spirit to the mind. And this is somebody with a physical sickness, right? So they moved from the, the spirit to the mind and they had this crazy trick actually where they were working this placebo effect where they would get people to go into this area where they had live unpoisonous snakes. So snakes with no actual venom. So think like a rat snake or a gardener snake, but it was kind of darkly lit and it was all ritualized. And the idea that snake venom could cure certain conditions was a very strong you know, concept back there. Like if you get the right snake venom, so people would know what was up and then they would get bit by one of these snakes. And the priests would be like, you're gonna be healed from this. And first of all, the adrenaline. So if you're in some kind of malaise, like the adrenaline of that experience, but then also they were working with the placebo effect. They were entraining people to believe that something out of the ordinary happened and this out of the ordinary thing is going to trigger the belief that you're well. And once that belief sets in that you're going to be well, as we've seen in the hundreds of different examples in clinical studies that Dispenza writes about in the book, You Are the Placebo, from sham knee surgeries to that worked and cured knees where they just make an incision in the, in the leg and then sew it back up. And they're like, your ACL's fixed. And they're like, fuck yeah, I feel great. You know, and the crazy shit like that that's happened to people imagining lifting weights with their biceps, but doing nothing and seeing like 17% muscle growth in their biceps from just imagining it, like they got that in ancient Greece thousands of years ago. So soul first, mind next, and then body, like finally at the very end. And we saw the surgical tools, they did eye surgery, they did all, they had stuff. Like sometimes you need to get into the body, but we've got that kind of backwards now. And we've forgotten a lot that I think it's time we start remembering. I mean, yeah, I don't know where you want me to go with that, but that's exactly what hit me as well was was the process that they would go through with the patients. And it wasn't, I'm going to rush you into surgery right away and deal with right. this. It was, no, 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 let's, let's put you in darkness. Let's put you in the snake pit. Let's give you body work. Let's put you in the hot springs. Mm -hmm. Let's pamper you with care and take care of your mind first. Mm-hmm and your nervous system, and then, if necessary, and it was crazy to think about, but if necessary, they would then do some sort of surgical procedure. But they also, my probably my favorite part about that trip was that as part of their, uh, their practice of holistic medicine, they made space for miracles. Yeah. And when miracles happened, they created or erected uh, statues uh, or artwork to commemorate the miracles. And many of them are still on the walls, now the museum uh, that we walk through, where based on whatever God or energy they were connecting with, miracles happened. Sight returned, hearing returned, limbs were reconstructed. and. I just, I love that because in modern medicine, there's not a lot of space for the miraculous to happen. And a lot of it, I think at the core is that true belief, mm -hmm. that placebo effect that it can happen. Yep. Every, every bit of language that we have in modern medicine is actually trying to undermine the presence of miracles. It's crazy. I was talking to Dr. Zach Bush about this when we were recently in Vegas and he's like, spontaneous remission? 
the fuck is that? It's yeah. a miracle. Yeah. It's a miracle, but we discredited it spontaneous remission some you know outlier in the you know statistical probability of what might happen he's like no that's not it but that's what we have to write down the placebo effect meaning like it's somehow not real even though it did exactly and you can measure it to do exactly what you would have wanted the drugs or the surgery to do which is a positive patient outcome but even the language itself dismisses like the actual healing that's possible and of course there's a big medical industrial complex that's supporting this. And I think this was one of the big issues. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was this is one of the biggest issues that I saw during the pandemic is, of course, there's a whole debate about the vaccines themselves, but there's a whole swath of what I believe to be undebatable, horrific medicine, which is the way that the psychology of people was handled which was the opposite. It was actually creating the nocebo effect. There was actually a doctor who they gave airtime that said walking outside without a mask is like walking in front of a firing line. Like that's the message that was going out. And like that is malpractice actually when you're looking at it from a holistic sense, right? Like it is, it's crazy the amount of fear and the amount of like every upside down way that they were treating holistic health telling people to stay away from beaches and things when vitamin d was clearly one of the highest correlations with positive health outcomes and that's something that brett weinstein just keeps hammering like the suppression of vitamin d and an issue with our country 90 percent of uh, our population has a vitamin d deficiency right and we know that the the incredible uh, healing effects that vitamin D has on the body. And when you have natural levels of it, the, uh, the defense against disease, uh, both in my opinion, mental and physical. Sure. We also know from Joe Dispenza and, 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 and Dr. Zach Bush and countless others that, you know, things like fear and stress and damage to the nervous system sticks in our body. There's, there's, places of bound up energy that are directly related to to stresses or traumatic events in our body. I did a deep dive when I had some back issues a few years ago and a dear friend of mine who's not in a woo-woo, not in anything, had had back issues since we were kids. And he read a book written by uh, a chiropractor who talked about, um, you know, the, uh, the referential pain spots in the back don't correspond usually to to the issues and there, there are there are traumatic events that happen there's car accidents there's major injuries that mm-hmm. can cause structural damages but so much of some of the issues that we deal with especially in the back are traumatic events that the body's stored up and and given uh, pain signals to the brain yeah i mean there's that great book the body keeps the score and if you've ever been a part of like some really good body work you know and i have been fortunate to be on the receiving end of that and then on also the giving giving end of that yeah Yeah, incredible thanks to the apprenticeship with parangi but you'll find a spot and as you work the tension in that spot you know with like steady you know steady loving pressure could be in the shoulder could be in the wrist or could be anywhere could be in the jaw like you'll see a flood of emotion just start to pour out and you know aaron you pointed to your jaw because that was a key moment where 
the intelligence of my body connected to your body said that there was something held in the jaw related to you know judgment and things with you know family but it wasn't even about the story about it but it was about where it was held and like the emotional catharsis of like releasing that spot in the body i mean we both just burst into tears at that point it's like we could feel like there was something deep there and it was released too yeah which is crazy i mean that's that's the truth behind this is that you know when i was on the receiving end of that you know i felt an incredible energetic release tied to a deep emotional wound Mm -hmm. that manifested in tears and emotions but the energy released from that is as real as the emotion that I felt after it was released, which yeah. was the true magic. It's just, it's, it's angering and saddening to just think about everybody just swallowing the narrative, which is actually completely supported by this medical industrial complex. I mean, I think we've all seen the compilations of all of these news segments brought to you by Pfizer. You know what I mean? Like this is not a, this is not like not in plain sight. It's in plain sight. And again, it's like, I think people get myopically focused on the vaccine, which, you know, has its nuances and there's different data points and different things or or myopically focused on the mask, but there's such a broader health issue with how we're treating the minds and how we're treating the trauma bodies and how we're dealing with the people who are really suffering. You know, I had a fucking tragic, like tragic, you know, thing that came up from, you know, one of a a sister of Vailana and I who, you know, had some deep, deep, deep trauma, family trauma. And her family who was participatory in perpetrating this trauma, you know, as she became aware of the trauma and as she's healing it and as she's having difficulty eating and she's having some conditions in her stomach where she's been obviously holding a lot of this pain, they committed her to a mental institution. It's like something's wrong. And then where they're going to put her on a bunch of different antidepressants and put her on a bunch of different drugs. And it was like, and I talked to her right before she went and I was like, like, this is your chance to like stand up and move. But the fear had gotten in so deep and the family dynamics and the pressure. And that's, and that's really what our system is. It's like, what pill, what shot, what thing can we give to chase this last symptom, this last disease? Well, guess what? We're just getting sicker and less healthy every fucking day. It's not working. It was one of the messages that I, you know, tried to portray during the last year as well is medicine is not a one size fits all. And there shouldn't be a, a blanket, oh, you have this, so you take this. Oh, you're dealing right. with this, so you need to take that. It, it's it's what we saw in Greece about the holistic approach of not just, you know, treating the uh, treating the symptoms, treating the, the patient. You know, what is at the core of this? And it, it revolutionizes the idea of mental health in general, that, that we need to get on an antidepressant if we're depressed. We need to get on this medicine if we're dealing with this issue. If it were this trauma, we need to be on this. And it's just numbing us, I think, at the core to the real issues going on and until we face those, which thankfully through our friendship and through my own personal work, you know, I've done the work. I've, you know, got down in the weeds and 
and pick them out one yeah. by one. And and until we, you know, as medical communities start to focus on, you know, the patient and not, you know, treating the symptoms, you know, we're going to be in this in this loop of a never ending cycle where we're not actually getting people better. We're yeah. just helping people maintain and, and helping people maintain at the level they're at is usually either not sustainable or not uh, a process that involves a lot of happiness or growth. Yeah, and it ultimately degrades health over time. You know, that's the difference between a lot of the typical pharmaceutical interventions, which can be super important can, and super yeah. and like we all have to have also, it's like a, yeah. a yes and mm-hmm. and a deep gratitude to all of this these medical advancements that have probably saved both of our lives from a staff, you know, staff infections that you've had to car accidents that I've had. Like, thank you, first of all, Pfizer for keeping my dick hard and all of these different things that, you know, have happened <laughs> on the party nights. You know, it's not like an everyday thing, but every once in a while, you know, you've had a little too much to fucking party and then like a little Viagra helps. So like mad praise to you, Pfizer. Like, thank you. I appreciate you. It's not all bad. But like, chill out, like chill, chill out a little bit. We're going way overboard with this whole system. We need to pull it back. And that's the defining difference between that medical model versus the psychedelic medicine revolution that's happening. I mean, in the MAP studies, they're treatment resistant PTSD. So all the pharmaceutical treatments don't work. And what they've been showing over and over in all their clinical trials is that with three sessions of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, they're not only curing curing the PTSD and the, and the associated symptoms, because there's a score, and if you get below a certain score, then you're considered normal. All of us carry a certain amount of trauma. So, But over time, even after those three interventions, those three treatments, over time, the person just gets better and better and better without ever having to take anything ever again, right? Like, that's what we want. We don't want something that you're on for life and generally on a downslope. Well, how do we monetize that, though? MAPS is a nonprofit, and that's the way. They've they've survived, and they've made it from donations. No, I mean the other side of that. That's the, that's the question. Exactly, exactly. And that's why a new model had to develop for this to even be pushed forward. I mean, MAPS gets a lot of credit for being the pioneer in this. And they did it from donations. And, you know, one of the reasons that I got into, actually the reason I got into psychedelic medicine, my dad was hooked up into MAPS. He actually was, even before even before MAPS, he was tied into Stan Groff and, and some of the early kind of pioneers. And then when MAPS developed, he got to be good friends with Rick Doblin and was donating in the early 80s for like initial study. So I was I grew up like understanding this paradigm and saw it really deeply benefit my father and then that was what led me to the vision quest that I had when I was 18 which took me on my whole journey was because of that kind of baptism that he had in this other world but now the world is starting to see it for real like people reporting top life experiences on clinically studied psilocybin intervention at Johns Hopkins and reducing end-of-life anxiety, depression, addiction. We're seeing so many different things that are cures, which is an absolute revolution to the medical model. And it's just the beginning. It is. It is. We're just scratching the surface because when you actually can correct those stories that are astray, in, in the forgetting that's in the body and in the mind and in the soul, when you can correct those things, 
we're miraculous healers. Like we can really heal ourselves. Yeah, the body is intricately put together and incredible at uh, crisis management, pain management, and healing itself. And it's always doing the right thing, even if it's like maybe it's not doing what we want it to do. But there's an intelligence behind everything the body is doing. Yeah, we just have to find ways to to prop that up and encourage it, and not and not dull it and turn it off. We got to turn on those receptors and turn on. Uh, and, and make room for the for the body to be able to to heal, and I think it's through uh, mental health probably first. Mm-hmm. So we're healing ourselves mentally and increasing our self love, and then you know going after those trauma sites, those stressors, those fear bound up energy spots in our body, and and starting to heal. Yeah, this was a part of what and this goes to actually the first time we met but this was this desire to expand your mental and spiritual health was like a part of what drew you to having interest in the psychedelic medicine path and uh you know i think we could tell the first story of of uh, of how we connected because it was a total surprise for me and then i'll pass it over to you to tell the story but uh, so I was doing a podcast with uh, Danica Patrick at um, at actually Tom Billu's house, and you were there, and I was like, "Oh, fucking cool! Aaron's here, great!" And you heard me just ramble on about psychedelics as I <laughs> as I uh, have a tendency to do on uh, on the show, and uh, and we finish up. It was all good, you know. I had a good show, and it was fun. And then uh, and then you pull me aside, and and you're like. Let me tell you about one of the best days of my life. I'm thinking, all right, fucking Super Bowl, you know, probably, like, you know, some other, like maybe it was a certain game or something like that. Of course, <laughs> I'm thinking like that. And he's like, yeah, one of the best days of my life. I took mushrooms on a beach with my friends and I felt myself merge with the ocean. And I was like, oh shit, it's my people. Let's go. Yeah, the backstory of that is, uh, I knew about you for a few years at this point. I'd seen, you know, a few of your uh, interviews with Joe Rogan. And so I, you know, had known about what you're into and what you talked about. And I was dating Danica and, and that relationship was was great for me because uh, she is on her own journey uh, and spirituality is important to her. And, and it, uh, we both, you know, were finding our way um, learning about different things, practicing meditation techniques, and and she started a podcast, and she had various guests on, and and there were you know times where you know it was during the off season, I was working out, I couldn't go, and and or just people that I didn't really know and and want to show up for, and and one day she was like, hey, I said, who you got today? And she said, so and so and Aubrey Marcus. I was like, the Aubrey Marcus, <laughs> the guy from On It. She's like, yeah. I was like. I'm coming <laughs> because uh, I, you know, had this uh, uh, psilocybin experience and and was just fascinated every time I heard you talk. I was like, "Oh, this guy, you know, is interesting," and I just felt like I feel like we're gonna be friends at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got there, I had this crisis of conscience where I was like, "How do I seem like I'm not crazy over the top excited to meet you, <laughs> but also let you know that you know." 
the stuff you've said has been meaningful to me and and uh, and i'm i'm starting my own journey uh-huh. um and so i got to share that with you and um you know then we you were friends with aj hawk uh-huh. you know who was dear dear friend of mine um and so i you know i think you came to some games and i knew you know i knew about you we just never met and that was like uh, a really fun meeting and I got your number and tried not to blow you up too much because I was like let me just not scare him away from actually being friends with me right now but I feel like at some point you know our world's going to collide yeah I mean I remember a, an embarrassing part of that story is obviously I knew who you were but and and watched you play for many years and I was like excited as well but for whatever reason when uh when I was putting your name in my phone I spelled your last name without a d and I was like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you dummy. Right in front of him. R-O-G-E-R-S. Fucking loser. He's never going to call you now. <laughs> Doesn't even know how to yeah. spell your name. That stuck with me for a number of years. But <laughs> just starting to give that up, I think. Oh. Yeah. Phew. I had to go deep into that Glad pain body. I'm glad it's, yeah. glad it's released now. Right. Glad it's Oof. released. Okay. Move on. The uh, So, we, you know, we stayed in touch for a while after that and just kind of went back and forth but actually um and i think it's actually worth sharing that you had you had an ayahuasca journey actually before we were really like really in close Mm -hmm. contact which actually you know for the timing of which was right before you had your two and two mvp seasons back to back so for anybody thinking like oh man do these psychedelics you're gonna do them and then you're not gonna want to do what you want so many people say that like i don't want to do that i'm a boxer and you know i'm worried that if i if i you know do ayahuasca i won't want to box it's like no if you're supposed to be a boxer it's going to be tell you how to be a better boxer it's like you really shouldn't worry about it if you're doing what you're here to do it's just going to tell you how to do it better and remove the obstacles from you doing it better and that was like you know and you can tell that story but that obviously was the case the first time you did ayahuasca because you went out there on the field had two mvp seasons back to back yeah i don't think it's a coincidence Uh, i really don't i don't really believe in in coincidences at this point it's the universe uh you know bringing things to happen when they're supposed to happen and there's signs and synchronicities all around us at all times if we're awake enough to to see them and to take them in and to listen to our intuition when it's speaking to us or you know, pounding us in the head saying, hey, dummy, wake up. This is, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. And through listening to, you know, your podcasts and following you and hearing you talk about psychedelics and my experience on the beach, um, it opened me up to the possibility of doing it. I'd heard about ayahuasca and, um, you know, I think there's so many uh, myths and rumors about it. The the fear around it is you're going to shit yourself. It's just a big throw up fest. It's, you know, all these. Both not completely untrue. Right. But all these, but the negative framework of it is that that is the experience, not the deep and meaningful and crazy uh, mind expanding uh, possibilities and also deep self-love and healing that can, that can happen the other side. And a dear friend of mine, Jordan, uh, in 2019 went uh, down to Peru um, and did an experience and came back and we were playing golf one day uh, right after he got back and he told me the whole story and I was moved, deeply moved. And I felt like now it's time. Mm. Now it's time for me to do it. So 
Um, so Danica and I planned a trip down to Peru with some friends to go do it and uh, also wedged around an incredible, unbelievable, I'm a deep lover of history, but incredible experience climbing Mount Machu Picchu mm. with a, a catchable guide. Did you go early in the morning? Yeah. That's when it's, we went yeah. at seven. and, and Got to catch like, that first train and get out there for anybody wanting to go to Machu Picchu. Like catch the first train, get out there fucking early when there's nobody there because you'll feel the energy oh, wake up. It was unbelievable. And just the magic there. We were up at like five, you know, and and, yeah. and I think we got on the bus at like 5.30, 5.45 or so. And, and by the time I got up there and got out, it was closer to seven. And, and we just, we took seven hours, uh, super slow and intentional climbing there's two mountains there, Huayna Picchu and Machu Picchu. They're both at the top, look down on the ruins. And a lot of people just, you know, hit the early bus and go right to the ruins. And it's probably amazing. But we took our time winding mm -hmm. up this this long path to the top of the mountain with these two incredible shamans um, and our, our Quechua guide and had a magical uh, experience uh, just enjoying the nature and the magic and the, the majesty of the mountain uh, and, and nature and then got to the top and stayed up there for a good hour or so, like just looking out at the incredible mountains around it, looking down at the ruins, imagining what life was like, you know, 600, 500 years before when, uh, you know, when the Incans were still, you know, alive and well and thriving in that environment. And, um, and, and just, they very well may have just kind of usurped whoever actually built it. Yeah. That's the interesting thing totally. about the Incans, like, they get a lot of credit in the history books. Mad love to the Incans. Awesome culture and civilization, but they might not have built shit. Totally, totally. But just imagining, you know, life uh, like that, and it was very easy to do in that environment with those people we went with, and then, and then making our way down, uh, back down to the ruins and walking through them, and it was a lightning storm that was going on, and our hair was standing up, and there was static all in the air, and it was just a, a magical experience. And went from that into an ayahuasca ceremony um, with Shipipo people and here in the Icaros and, and the room filled with mapacho. And um, it, was a, it was a magical, magical uh, first night um, of just surrendering to any of the lessons uh, that needed to come through, through the grandmother spirit of the vine. And, and um you know, I've told this story about my trip to Peru uh, and getting back into the country Argo style, literally uh, taking off a half hour before the entire country shut down as it was oh, wow. March 8th of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. But it was a, it was a very deep and meaningful uh, couple nights uh, ceremony. And I came back and knew that I was never going to be the same. Um, and like you said, it, it doesn't, you don't do that and then, not, for me, I didn't do that and think, oh, I'm never playing football again. No, it, it gave me a deep and meaningful uh, appreciation for life. And my intention the first night going in was, I wanna see what, I wanna feel what pure love feels like. That was my intention. And I did, mm -hmm. I really did. I had a magical experience with uh, the sensation of feeling a hundred different hands on my body imparting a blessing of love 
and forgiveness for myself and gratitude for this life from what seemed to be my ancestors. Um, and I came back and the pandemic hit. So I mm. went from this incredible bliss in Peru to a pandemic uh, back in the States. And the first part, if you, if you remember, the pandemic was actually incredible. You know, living where I, yeah. where I live in Malibu, the skies opened up and were beautiful. Yeah. It seemed like the ocean was bluer. There's a lot of positivity that came from that. You know, we're going to take a pause for two weeks, you know, and a lot of people like coming together. There yeah. was a, a lot of the human spirit was really shining beautifully mm -hmm. in that moment. That obviously got replaced by a lot of fear and yeah. manipulation and death and different things. But, but um, I really feel like that set me on my course to be able to go back in to my job and have a different perspective on things and then to, to be way more free at work as a leader, as a teammate, as a friend, as a lover. And I really feel like that experience paved the way for me to have uh, the best season of my career. Mm -hmm. People often ask me, and first of all, let's just get this out of the way. This is not a recommendation for everybody to go do ayahuasca because it worked out super great for you. It worked out really good for me. I mean, when I did my first ayahuasca, it showed me exactly how to navigate on it, to clear up all of the different kinks in the hoses of energy, to, you know, how to just trust the truth and like speak it from the heart and to reimagine the whole system from how we didn't ask anybody to send their products back if they wanted a return we would just trust them it's like like the Taoist wisdom trust them and they become trustworthy you know all of these different principles that really allowed on it to be on it as it was it showed me that really clearly but first before that you know so there's lots of positive things but it's also not for everybody i've also seen people you know who were challenged in certain ways it can be a trial by fire and sometimes the fire will burn more than than you're ready for so this is not a recommendation to do psychedelics it's a very personal choice and you have to deeply listen you know so want to just get that out of the way earnestly you know as much as i talk about psychedelics i always like to mention it because it's important you know like one person's path is not another person's path there is not a one-size-fits-all medicine as you said so with that being said for me I mean, the <laughs> did I ever tell you properly the first the first story of me doing ayahuasca? I'll tell it. <laughs> I'll tell it quickly. So I'm with Maestro Orlando El Dragon de la Selva, who you know, and we'll get to that story because we shared an ayahuasca journey this year as well, which was unbelievably powerful with Maestro Orlando, my very first shaman. We go in this this small hut, and there's no co-facilitators or anybody who speaks English in the hut. It's just <laughs> Orlando, and then. We're in like the, in the deep jungle, Orlando, and then there's like 10 other people because there was a bunch of different, there's three different shamans they could choose from. And they basically said about Orlando, this is the dragon. It's the most intense medicine. And, you know, if you want to go there, just be mindful. It's going to be fucking gnarly. And it's like only like 10 people out of the 60 that were there at this retreat showed up for him. And so we just got like me, hunt. you love dragons. So I of fucking loved said... dragons from the start. It's like my whole life was oh, leading me. Dragon guy. To say yes, yeah. a dragon guy, easy choice. Yeah. We go there and it was the most harrowing experience. Well, not the most, I've had plenty of harrowing experiences since, but it brought me through every possible way that I could die. First of all, there was bugs crawling into my eyes. 
crawling in my eyes, laying eggs and exploding out my eyeballs, eating my eyes and exploding out my eyeballs and brain. And I was like, I mean, I'd done enough psychedelics to be in the witness and allow perspective. Like, all right, all right, just witnessing. I'm, I'm watching a horror movie where I'm the fucking victim here. <laughs> and I'm just going to watch it, though. <laughs> this is uncomfortable, but I'm going to watch it, you know. And then there was eels that started. They did this thing. They had like a... They had like a mouth with teeth and they like burrowed into my sides, into my ribs and into my belly and started eating my organs from the inside out, like spinning, spinning around. So they're like a saw, like a circular saw that was like trying to extract a tube and they're eat, going inside and just going wild, like eating all of my organs. I was like, that's fucking horrific. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm cool with that. And like, I can handle that. <laughs> and then the worst one was, well, not the worst, the second worst one. I was naked, fully naked, and I was bear hugging like I was climbing a palm tree, you know, except it was filled with thorns. It was one of the thorns like that the, the have the spikes, the berotes, the spikes in the, in the Amazon. And I was sliding down it like a fireman pole, Oof. naked, and the, and the spikes were just ripping up my genitals, like ripping me from like asshole to belly button, just spikes like coming through. And I'm like, that's fucking rude. <laughs> and that wasn't the worst. That wasn't the worst. <laughs> And then it was like, and because my uncle had uh, lymphoma, so cancer was like present. And it was like, okay, you've passed those tests, but sorry to tell you, you got cancer and you're going to die. And I was like, no, that's what got me. I was like, no way, no way. I started feeling my glands and I was like, fucking no way, no way. Like I can't, I resisted it, resisted it. And right in that point of resistance, the woman next to me, she pukes, not in her bucket, but on my feet. Right on, right on, right on my feet. So it was on my socks and on the mat and everything. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me here. So I'm like doing that, dealing with this revelation that ayahuasca told me I had cancer. I was like, this is fucking, this is brutal. And meanwhile, Orlando's just in the middle of the room sending this spiral of white snakes up to the, up to the heavens, like this just big column of light and energy just swirling. And I was like, whoa. And then the woman next to me gets stuck in a loop. And in the loop she was in, she keeps going, I can't tell if I actually shit my pants or I imagine I shit my pants. <laughs> 30 minutes straight. I can't tell if I actually shit my pants or imagine I shit my pants. And Orlando didn't speak hardly any English. He's got a little bit of English now. Not my, much. Not no. much. <laughs> he didn't understand anything. So everybody's calling for help trying to explain to him what's going on. And... He's like, I don't fucking know. So he just kept seeing an Icaros. So I'm just dealing with this. And then finally, I was like, fuck it. If I got cancer and that's my path and that's what I have to deal with, so be it. And if I die, so be it. Like, I, even then, I knew that I'd lived a life where I'd lived. Like, I'd loved, I'd lived, I'd fought, I'd cried. You know, I'd lived as a poet lived. And that was always my moniker, the warrior poet. I'd lived with a poet's heart, which opens the heart and all the feeling centers to feel. So I was like, okay. And then it was just like, you know, the scene where Awa wraps up, you know, Jake in all of those spindles of light and just pulls him down into the ground. And I just felt held by Gaia and just like held and nestled. And then Ayahuasca was like, you don't have cancer, silly. You're so healthy and we love you and you're always held. I was like, oh, thank you. But that, that was the first of those three journeys, and I had crazy visions of alien ships beaming light under my tongue and another flotilla of snakes like pulling, pulling you know, 
pulling energy out and then I popped into this other dimensional reality where I felt like I could manipulate you know, my own health and manipulate future timelines. And I, I went to go heal. Actually, Makad had just gotten in a car accident. So I went to his body and started doing work and healing him, at least in my own mind. And according to his story, he felt that experience. And of course, this all sounds wild and magical, but this was the experience that happened from that. But then ultimately, at the end of that, it just gave me very specific instructions about how to build on it for the next 10 years. And of course it worked out just as it told me, the blueprint that I'd seen there gave me the guidance. So people ask me like, who would Aubrey be without these psychedelic medicines? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I don't know. I mean, they helped me in every aspect from my physical health to my mental health, to my spiritual health, to my visioning of my life in every way. So for me, it's been, you know, one of the greatest blessings of my life. I think there's there's a lot of wisdom in there, and again, it's not for everybody. Yes, yeah. it's. I really feel like, you know, I wasn't called to it for years and years after I did a psychedelic experience. Um, but after I talked to Jordan, I was like, okay, now it's time. And after my first experience and the and the disjointed, having to get out of Peru quickly and all that, it left me with the taste in my mouth that I definitely wanted. Uh, to do it again and to sit, uh, you know, more times than that, and that there was more lessons to be learned and growth and expansion to uh, to enjoy, and and that's what you know kind of led us up to to this year. So there was a key moment. You know, we would keep in touch kind of loosely, but I saw, and this is one of those things where I like give a deep bow to the universe and the unseen forces and forces that guide things to the way that they're supposed to be because like I'm really grateful for our friendship, man. Like, like really, like it's a big deal. You know, like Vi and I moved our, for people to know like how deep it is. We were going to get our proper spiritual wedding in October. And, um, because you weren't going to be there, like we moved it. And it's, it's a, it's a very like meaningful friendship, like a, like a deeply meaningful friendship. And I'm so grateful because in this, I watched a lot of football, but, and I liked watching you play, obviously, you know, and I kind of, we kind of knew each other. I watched this amazing game. You can probably tell more about the game, but I don't recall ever watching uh, a post-fight interview. I just, I just turn it off at that point. I like the game. I don't, it's usually uninteresting afterwards to hear everybody talk because everybody says the same shit. But you came across and there was a look in your eyes that was coming from your heart. Like I could see your heart and uh, like, you know exactly what you said and maybe the nature of the game, but, but I witnessed that and I saw something. So, so tell us about that game and like what you were feeling in that moment that I saw, because I saw, I saw a warrior poet. I saw someone with that, that same heart. Well, first of all, I love you and I appreciate your friendship so much. Um, it's it's hard to put into words what you mean to me but every time i try and explain it to you i get so teared up i can't get any words out <laughs> yeah but, obviously me too well you have the ability like my dear friend randall cobb to be able to talk through tears i don't have that skill <laughs> um randall is a you know dear dear friend and he has this unbelievable ability to have the biggest tears you could 
possibly imagine rolling down his cheeks and not break voice or anything and just and i'm just like man that's incredible <laughs> so deep feeling and so like able to communicate i want that <laughs> every time i try and tell you how i feel i'd start crying but um but that game you know was an impetus for our friendship to go from you know every now and then keeping in touch to like brothers which is yeah. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful Mason made that kick. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mason. Yeah, so tell us about tell us about that game because I actually don't we remember the playing, game other than it was a fucking epic game. Yeah, we were uh, one and one. Went to San Francisco, great football team. My team growing up, and played an epic game against them. Back and forth, Sunday night football, um, which I always love playing on Sunday night football, and um, we took the lead and. Uh, in the fourth quarter and then they had this big long drive and and scored to go up 28 uh, 27 i believe it was with uh 40 seconds left um and i love those situations too the opportunity to have the ball late in the game and make something happen and you know i had a lot of confidence and was doing my box breathing on the sidelines and getting in my in my right what do you do for your box breathing was it fours i just do fours yeah so that's an inhale of four, hold at the four. top at four, exhale for four. Hold, you hold at the bottom for hold four the bottom too? for four, yeah. yeah. And I was given this technique years ago and, and started implementing it uh, in the locker room, before the game, halftime, before a big drive, or if I feel a little out of my body, maybe I'll do this. And so it's just common ritual, you know, two minute, uh, two minute drive I do on the sidelines and then I'm, you know, slapping heads and, and encouraging guys that were going to go out and score. And we went out and um, and hit Devontae like on a – just over the fingertips of Fred Warner for a big gain to get us going and then hit Devontae to get us in the field goal range and spiked it and and had this just awesome feeling, fist pump, you know, run the sidelines, just this knowing like my boy Mace is going to make this kick. Now before that, you know – Ask anybody who loves football, they're, me growing up, my favorite games to watch, Sunday night and Monday night. Yeah. You know, because we're not at school. There's nothing going on. I don't have to go to church on Sunday morning, so I miss the 10 a.m. games when I'm on the West Coast. But ask anybody who plays in the league just about, especially older guys like me, our favorite games are noon games. You wake up, you go to the stadium, <laughs> you play, you go home. You need to relax, chill out, maybe right. catch the end of the, the afternoon game and then get to watch Sunday night game and just relax, you know. So I say that because there's so much idle time on a Monday night or Sunday night game. You're just kind of waiting all day long for the yeah, game yeah. to happen. You try and how do I fill, you know, five hours to myself? But for me on this day, I was, uh, you know, channel surfing and Moneyball was on. And Moneyball is, I've always enjoyed it and it was on. And I decided to watch it. And my favorite uh, part of the movie is at the end. So they've lost the game and Brad Pitt and, and Jonah Hill are sitting there and, and Jonah, and they're disappointed because they put in this whole new, you know, way of doing things uh, based uh, upon a different way of looking at analytics. And they went through, you know, people trashing them about how this is a stupid thing ever. He redid his whole scouting department. This is never going to work. You know, you have people ripping them on the radio. Then they win, you know, 20 something games in a row, mm -hmm. you know, and they end up making this run and go to the playoffs, but then they lose. Uh, they lose in the playoffs and, and they're disappointed with the season and question everything like like we always do. And and Jonah shows them a clip of, uh, man, I'm getting emotional thinking about it, but um, a clip of uh, a minor leaguer hits a home run 
and rounds first and doesn't know it's a home run. And he's trying to get to second. He trips and falls and just kind of crawls back into first base. And the point of uh, him saying it was he didn't realize he did a home run. It's about perspective. And Brad Pitt leans back and and he says, how can you not be romantic about baseball? And it's just, it's an amazing moment of of being able to sit with the emotion of disappointment, but still have the perspective that you did something really special. Mm-hmm. And I've dealt with a lot of disappointment in my career, a lot of incredible moments, highs, and great wins and win a Super Bowl and win MVPs and also dealt with the disappointing losses, you know, some that stick with you forever. But at the core of it, there's such a love for the game. Mm-hmm. There's such a deep and intense love and gratitude for what I get to do. That's just, you can't measure it. And that's why I keep wanting to come back and play and and literally pour my soul into my sport and the relationships with the guys and the Monday to Saturday grind and the meetings and practice and the side conversations and the late night texts and everything that goes into doing what I do. I do it because I love it. You know, obviously I'm paid like a king and, and I'm so thankful for the financial freedom this game has given me. And I like to think I've given this game a lot. But in that moment, talking to Michelle Tafoya after the game and the elation, I, I jumped, you know, probably higher than I jumped at the combine uh, after that kick went in. It's just not that high. Uh, it was not that high basketball. anymore. Yeah, <laughs> fit a couple, a couple, maybe a ream of paper underneath the, the jump. Um, he uses his body well, though. Yeah, it's yeah. A good but I, I brought my knees up, so the jump looked way <laughs> higher. That's a little trick for us old guys. You know, you jump normally, you're like, oh, fairly vertical. You jump and you bring your knees up. Oh yeah. Like man, you were oh, way up boy. there. But I just looked around the stadium, and and felt into that feeling of just elation and and love and i just said how can you not be romantic about football and it was a great sign off and i've done some really fun interviews over the years especially with michelle we've had some epic sunday night games one year we're playing 2012 we're having a rough start to the season we're two and three we're playing the texans they're five and oh and i went out and threw six touchdowns and we lit them up and all week been a lot of chatter about us on the downturn and blah 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 and i'm not playing good and and I, and I did the famous, uh, what do you have to say to your detractors? And I said, shh. <laughs> so I'm thankful for Michelle and in our interviews. But this interview was really, really special. And then I got on the bus afterwards like we always do. And the come down starts to happen and the, and the adrenaline starts to leave your body. And your, your, the fatigue starts to kick in. And I was going through my phone. And, and when you play a, a primetime game, um, you know, as a, you play a noon game, you know, for me. And, and we win. I might get, you know. 30 to 50 texts, possibly. It's a lot of the same people who are always reaching out. This one's like, you know, you play a primetime game and you win and you play well and you win in dramatic fashion. You might have, I might have 300 texts. But for whatever reason, as I was going through them, you know, your name came up and, and I was like, oh man, I'm so glad he reached out. And that, that, that was really meaningful. And, 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 you talked about uh, a warrior poet, and I've never, you know, I can't say that I've always looked at myself in that sense, but I've always had a deep love for poetry, and my favorite poem forever has been The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, and I've always felt like that's been kind of a compass for me, that when decisions happen, that it's 
not always the road that's grassy and wanted wear that just that's the one to take it's it's often the one that uh that doesn't get taken as as much it's it's and then you look back at the end of that decision he talks about in the frame of end of the life but really at the end of that decision and you have so much gratitude for the fortitude sometimes to make mm-hmm. that tough decision um, so I've always enjoyed enjoyed poetry, and, and thankfully a, a teacher of mine in fourth grade, Mr. Thomas, would give us assignments to memorize poetry, and that was mm-hmm. one of the first ones that I memorized and can still say it to this day, thankfully. Um, but but the idea of being a warrior poet, um, like uh, like one of the last lines of Braveheart, mm. um, they, fought always, like, they fought like warrior poets. Yeah, has always stuck with me, and the idea of, uh, the the gentleness and the perspective and the thoughtfulness of a poet, but the ferocity and the courage of a warrior is something I've always tried to try and to strive for. And that's really what I saw. What I saw was a warrior who went out and led from the front and really led his team through adversary and adversity, and then. But in the interview, what really shined was the poet. So I'd watch the warrior and then the poet. And the poet is, as I said, it's the one who opens their heart to feel. And so you were allowing yourself to feel the full breadth of that. Not focused just on yourself, but a love that transcended the self into the love of the entire game, the romance of the entire thing. And to see you not only open yourself to that degree, but also expand your consciousness to a level where it transcended the individual win. I'm so happy we won. It was like, I love this game. Like I love the entirety of the world that's allowed this game to exist. It was the the including your own love of having won, of course, but transcending it to a greater love of the entire game, which turned the finite game of football, of that football game, you know, Packers versus Niners, that's a finite game, has a endpoint and a score to the infinite game of i love it isn't this game romantic you know and and that that just showed me something and i was like holy shit so i reached out and expressed that and i think that landed in a in a different way than oh fucking great game man you know which is true it was a fucking great game and i appreciate those texts yeah uh, those, of course those, those are great of course but uh but that was like a moment where i think both of us in me seeing you then you you saw like Oh shit! I think he actually like sees me in this point. I think that's a deep, uh, a deep innate desire in all of us is to be seen and understood exactly how we see ourselves, and to be reflected like that from you made me feel deeply seen. And to feel deeply seen is to open up your heart to connect with another, and that's what I felt in that moment. Um, because that moment was such an intense moment of gratitude for me that I wasn't just saying the game of football. I was saying I get to go on the field and play in front of 70,000 people with some of my best friends in the entire world, compete at something I'm great at and I love doing in front of millions of people who get at least a minimum level, probably just at least a sliver of happiness, Mm -hmm. of distraction from anything that takes away joy and happiness in their life. And I get to help provide that. 
what an incredible honor. Mm. I mean, how can you not have so much love and gratitude for what this game is, what it's given me, and how it's changed my life? And and to be reflected like that, and I love, like I said, I love everybody reaches out, and I can't get back to everybody, especially not after you know three hundred texts in the Sunday mm-hmm. game. But it's all deeply meaningful for someone to take the time to reach out, and then to reach out and be seen. Though, it it takes it to a different level. Yeah, the this feeling that we get when we, you know, a lot of people might be like, oh, you know, sports doesn't matter. It's all silly. And you could say that about life as well. Like once you understand the unborn, undying, infinite nature of our true self, if you actually understand that, you could actually look, and I think that's a trap that you can get in to say, well, life doesn't matter. You can slip into these nihilistic standpoints of like, doesn't even matter anyways. But it does. It does and it doesn't. And I think the beauty of actually what's capable, what's available in these sports is not only for the participants, you get to play in something that matters because we want to care. As the deeper, the deeper I've gone, what I realize that I really want from life, my deepest desire is desire itself. I want to want, I want to care. The opposite of caring, if someone's like, you know, what do you want? And you're like, I don't care. It's like, if you don't want something, you don't care. And, and, and that's no way to live, you know? So to, to be a fan and really care, it's a great gift. It's awesome. It's just like a, it's a microcosm of life, you know? And so I'm excited about this upcoming season because now I have a reason to care because my fucking brother's playing. So I'm going to be watching those games and it's, those are going to be special moments. Those are going to be like highlights of my week where I know that I get to leave all of my worldly issues and challenges and problems. And for that game, I just fucking care about the Packers and I care about them fucking winning and I care about you playing well, but I care about what you care about, which is that the team wins. And so I get to come into that and it's a, it's a moment of, of ecstasy of presence and, and feeling and excitement. And so, you know, it's, I think there potentially are some people listening. They're like, Oh, it's just a game. Yeah. You could say that about life, Mm -hmm. but like when you care, it can be something extremely special. Now, of course, there's bounds. You can get fanatic about it. You can get over-identified with it. You know, I think always be mindful when you start saying like, oh, we should have done this when you're a fan. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I appreciate that idea, but it's not really you. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's it's important to like not get lost in it, but do get lost in it. You know, and that's what makes any anything is like allow yourself to get lost. But as the Toltecs would say, like, let that be your controlled folly. Like know that it's folly to give everything and to care as much as you can possibly care for this time, but don't carry it on to the end of, you know, weeks or months later where you're lamenting a loss of your favorite, like it's okay. Like you can, you can have both. You can care maximum and also be balanced with it. hundred percent. I used to have a personal policy I thought was, you know, revolutionary and badass and impenetrable. And it was, Kill them with indifference. Let me just tell you, that didn't work. (laughs) You'll kill yourself. I was acting. Yeah. Because what I realized was I care so deeply, so deeply. And not that I cared about, because my motto was like, any detractor or criticism, not going to respond to it because I'm going to show them that I don't care. That's not what I'm talking about. What I 
what I truly found was that I care so deeply about how I show up in the world. And I care about the person that I am and being seen and heard and understood exactly how I see and understand myself. So this idea that I was somehow, you know, creating this wall of invincibility through indifference is was a facade that I had to dismantle because it, all it did was rot me from the inside. Mm-hmm. Because at my core, I care so deep. Yeah. And I care about myself. I care about my people. I care about showing up in the world exactly how I want to show up. And it wasn't about responding to detractors or criticism because that I give less and less fucks about every mm-hmm. single year. It was what do I really care about and showing up and showing that I care about those things to those people, to those issues, to those relationships. And that was a good lesson to learn. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the lessons that came through your first night of ayahuasca when we did it. So we went off to see my first shaman, El Dragon de la Selva, Maestro Orlando, fucking legend, you know, kind of the, uh, the epitome of the Quechua lineage in that deep lineage tradition of serving medicine. There's three lineages in Peru. Mostly there's the Mestizo tradition, the Quechua tradition, the Shipibo tradition, and he's part of the Quechua tradition. And we went to go see him. Medicine is thick. Medicine is heavy. And, uh, I remember you had to square off with the double-edged sword of caring and the drive to be excellent in everything, which is really harsh self-criticism. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, going into this experience, uh, I was like, oh, perfect. I got my intentions. I got the things I want to do. I want to call in these people. I want to have talks with these people's higher selves. I want to do all this stuff. And night one was like, had a mind of its own. And it was (laughs) all about a major ego death. It was going to the depths of my soul and and hearing and feeling all that self-criticism, all that doubt, all that judgment that I placed on myself and sitting with it for hours with zero psychoactive experiences Nothing happening other than me and that voice in my head, on my shoulder, in my heart, in my body saying, you are not enough. You're not worth it. You're a shitty person. You're all these things. And sitting with the depth of that reality. And it was really, really tough. Mm-hmm. And it, it broke me to the core. And I wrestled with it for hours. I asked for another cup. I wanted some other experience other than the one that I was dealing with. And ayahuasca said, no, 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 no. This is the work we're doing right now. You have these ideas about you know, healing this relationship and yeah, doing gonna, this. You and had big intentions to reconcile some of the feelings with your family, which has been yeah. challenging. You had all these noble intentions. Ayahuasca said, was like, no, 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 we got no. other plans. You can't do anything in this life until you really, truly, unconditionally love yourself. Whew, okay. So that's what I had to do. I had to surrender fully to the idea that everything I was telling myself was true. And that's the only time, that's when it finally broke, was I laid there on that mat and I made peace with the possibility that all of these lies I was telling myself 
could possibly be true. And in that reality, in that reality of the worst self-talk you could possibly imagine, feeling like the lowest human on the planet and not worthy ever in this life of unconditional love. Man, You're taking me Steve. back there right now, Steve. Yeah, Steve. I said, uh, and we had a group of twenty-two amazing people and incredible facilitators, and El Dragon, and all his magic. And I laid there with that reality, that being my reality, that all the things I said about myself are true and are real. And I said, "Is there anybody in this room who could still love me?" And you came to mind first. And with the connections in the room, I felt like there were a few others, you know, who came to mind as well, including your incredible wife. And what came through next was the voice in my head, which wasn't really my voice anymore. And I said, if at your lowest of low, these people can still love you, then you should be able to love yourself. Very much like my first story where ayahuasca was like, you have cancer and you're going to die. And until I accepted, it's this, this is interesting thing. You know, in life, we find obstacle. We learn, especially as men, fight that obstacle. Yeah. Fight it, resist it, overcome it by a force of will. And in the medicine space, it's an opposite skill. How much can you let go? How deeply can you accept? And, and in the acceptance is this alchemical transformation that's available. And that's the brilliance, the magnificent brilliance of ayahuasca is it will keep you. And Iboga does the same thing very much so. Iboga once told me I was the biggest piece of shit on the planet for like nine hours. And then finally, I did the same thing. I accepted it. It showed me, showed me as this like bowling ball, where I was like, I had this gravitational force, and I would draw people to me, and then I would crush them, and their own will would get usurped by my own energy. And I was just like, I was just the worst. And then I was like, fine, I'm the fucking worst. Okay, Aboga, you win. Like I'm the worst of the worst. And then it was like, nah, just kidding, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and it showed that ball lift up out of the ground instead of trampling things. It was like a sun and all things were growing underneath it. It was like, this is who you really are. But that lesson of it's counterintuitive is it's like it requires us to accept the thing that we're afraid of or the thing that we're resisting. And in the acceptance is the permission to transform. And you you really wouldn't learn that other way of doing things. At least it's hard without something extraordinarily challenging in your life where you can actually do that in real life. But this is a way to actually not require, because the universe wants us to learn that lesson. So instead of having to play it out in real life, which is messy and takes a long time and has a lot of consequences, we get to work through these things in like this Dr. Strange bubble of medicine where we get to do it for practice, but it's for real for our whole life so that 
what I really believe is that life won't force us into those situations where we have to learn that lesson the hard way through a near-death experience or a cataclysmic injury or something like that. We can actually learn something really important in a space where we're safe and healthy. Yeah, 100%. And I think for those listening who, you know, have judgment around it or misunderstanding or questions about it, there's the knowing comes from doing, and it's not for everybody at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not something that I'm recommending that you've recommended, but for me and my mental health, and we talk so much about mental health, you know, Marshawn Lynch had a classic kind of retirement press conference talking about taking care of your mentals. And we talk so much about it, uh, about mental health. And to me, one of the core tenets of your mental health is that self-love. And that's what ayahuasca did for me, was help me see how to unconditionally love myself. And it's only in that unconditional self-love that then I'm able to truly be able to unconditionally love others. Mm-hmm. And what better way to work on for me and my own, this is my own belief, but what better way to work on my mental health than to, than to have an experience like that? I mean, the best, the greatest gift I can give my teammates, in my opinion, is to be able to show up and to be someone who can model unconditional love to them yeah i mean obviously it's important i play well and show up and lead and all that stuff but you know they won't care about what you say until they know how much you care everybody reads a lot more than the language that we speak you know that's the that's the biggest gift we can give it's what we hold and what we carry and i think the moment that you say i love myself because you're fucked as soon as you say because, then you're always measuring that because on a scale with everybody else's because. Because in actuality, you're like one of the most lovable human beings I know. Like for people who don't know what Aaron Rodgers is like, actually, like you came out to our farm out here in Lockhart and you were hanging out with us. I couldn't stop you from doing the dishes every fucking day and every night. We had 10 people in the house. You're just in there with a fucking towel over your shoulder, doing the dishes, like supporting people, being of service in every way. Like you would think you would be one of those people that everybody's like catering to. No, you were like the most of service of everybody in every way you could, even the trivial, menial ways of cleaning up other people's dishes, you know? And like that's the person who came in and believed that they were not lovable. So this, and of course, all of your accomplishments and all of your other things, there's no amount of becauses that we can build in our life that will make us love ourselves other than when we say, I love myself, period, period, period. Which is like saying, as soon as you go, I am, and then put something else after that, like I am smart, I am blah, 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 then you're not actually in the I am. And the I am, is the field of consciousness and that I love myself is the field of love. And once you know that, then you actually have the key code to like really stable mental health. And I think probably one of the reasons that I came to mind was because in my essence, like you understand that I understand the I am and I understand the I love period. 
I love myself, I love, period. And so that thing that I was able to model through my own journeys and trials and tribulations, you could see that that type of thing was possible. And, and I think the medicine obviously without me could have shown you it in its own way. It's, but to have that modeled is, is very important. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's the most important act of service that we can give is to is what we actually carry inside. It's who we be. Well, I would I would expand on that and say that that your impact is is way more than that. Um, just coming to mind in a ceremony where I needed to know who could unconditionally love me, it's it's redefining, I think, what a man is, which is so important. You know, highly successful entrepreneur started and sold a company uh, in shape manliest of men that I know and the, probably the most vulnerable person that I know. And that modeling allows for others the permission slip to do the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason you came to mind first, obviously our connection, but just to see yourself as flawed and still love yourself gives permission for everybody else to yeah. do the same. And it's a vulnerability to go into those emotional moments and sit with the emotions too. I think as men, it's so easy to compress them. I did it most of my life to repress and compress them into the depths of our being instead of just sitting with them. Mm -hmm. What does this feel like in my body? To be alive is to feel all those emotions, I think. Not just the highest of highs and the elation and the joy of, you know, sports or sex or relationship or love or companionship, friendship, whatever it might be. It's to feel the sadness and the regret and the frustration and the the depth of all those emotions is what it means to be alive. And that's a gift that you give not just me as a dear friend, but but the people that are in your life and your sphere of influence listen to your podcast. And that's what we need as men. We need more men willing to, to be vulnerable. And that's hopefully what I can continue to take to my teammates and, and our sport is to open up opportunities to have deep and meaningful conversations, to connect, to be vulnerable, to not have to be on the outside. You look like the machoist of macho dudes. And, mm -hmm. you know, although you're not great on the basketball court, like, <laughs> You know, posting your workouts online and on it and everything. But on the inside, you're a deeply, highly sensitive, vulnerable human who fucking loves with a humongous heart. And that's the modeling that we need, the the redefining of, of the masculine qualities, calling in the divine feminine to mm -hmm. balance our lives out and to raise up like you do so incredibly well, to raise up the women in your life and to give them a platform to speak and to lead and to to set the trajectory for the next the next generations. And I think, you know, as someone who loves you a lot, I, I think I just want to just say that to you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I think that's definitely another key piece of, you know, similarity that we both share that I noticed is there's a, a deep reverence for the feminine. And this is not just the feminine embodied as a woman. It's the feminine aspects and qualities. You know, I mean, it's a lot of what you were just mentioning are 
the feminine characteristics that I hold in myself. And I think this was an old idea, an old alchemical idea of actually, they called it the rebus, which was the balanced masculine and feminine, or as Zach Bush describes, it's the bird that flies with a strong right wing, masculine wing, and a strong feminine wing. And it's that's what it really allows for the maximum fruition of who we really are. It's, it's really the warrior poet. It's another way to say it. It's these, It's the embracing of these things that people have said you got to pick one or the other. It's like, not really, because both of them support each other in incredible ways. And so celebrating the goddesses and priestesses and women and girls and everybody who embodies that in physical form, but also celebrating that and cultivating that internally as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why I'm able to actually like step into my reverence for the feminine is because I can feel how much I treasure it in myself as well. And of course, I'm glamored and absolutely bedazzled by Vailana and, and a lot of our, you know, a lot of the embodied goddesses, of course, you know, in the form, it's like, wow, that's fucking incredible to see it in form. Whoa, you know, that's a special <laughs> thing. But also like the deep appreciation of, of where that comes inside and and the permission to actually experience that and i think i have to give some credit to my parents for that because i simultaneously had the most love for the most aggressive cartoons and action figures gi joe and he-man and swords i was obsessed with swords since i was a little kid i actually you met my stepdad steve big hulk of a man former swat team squad leader you know, I remember I was three years old and whipping my sword around and I fucking cut him across the eye <laughs> with my plastic sword. He was like, whoa, buddy, take it easy. I was like, oh, sorry. You know, and I was just like slaying the dragon, you know. And at the same time, I had my little My Little Pony collection and my parents just let me. You know, my stepbrothers gave me hell. You know, <laughs> they gave me fucking hell, my three older stepbrothers. But that they didn't like suppress that in any way when I was like, you know, arranging my My Little Ponies, like my little harem of horses, like I was an old con from Mongolia. I'm like, this is my herd of horses and I love them and I will pet their manes and I'll smell that cheap plastic that smelled all so delicious. Yeah. I remember when I got some My Little Ponies like uh, recently, probably, I don't know, what was it, Vi, like uh, two years ago when I got the My Little Ponies for the first time since when I was a kid. And... And I was like, they just don't smell the same anymore. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted that. I wanted that memory to come back of like what they smelled like, but they didn't. But I think the fact that they didn't squash that was also permission that I got from them to also like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's okay that you like My Little Ponies and it's okay that you like He-Man and Swords and like, they really allowed me to be a full spectrum being. And so I brought that with me. I think it's my nature, but I think it's everybody's nature, but a lot of it gets squashed because they want you to be all one way, all suck it up, cowboy up, rub some dirt on it and, and don't feel it or all the other way. And I think, you know, of course, girls have a whole different set of conditionings, you know, repress this emotion. This is you being quote bitchy or something like that. And, and we have to deal with, the full embrace of both the masculine and feminine within us and also externally and and a deep reverence for that and i think that's one of the big cultural problems that we have is 
yes, there's toxic elements of the masculine and the feminine. And a lot of the challenges in the world are the result of toxic masculine energy, masculine energy where I'm going to conquer, I'm going to do this thing at all costs, which is a toxic representation of what that energy is designed to do, which is to move forward in a straight line. But we can't forget the celebration of the true aspects of both the masculine and the feminine. So it's not about tearing one side down. It's about absolute reverence needs to be the substrate. And then we deal with the shadow elements of both sides. But you got to really love both of those and celebrate both of those. I think that's it's not a concept that's really embraced a whole lot in an alpha male environment in the NFL is embracing sure. that. But I think it's could be the cause of some of the rage and <laughs> repressed feelings that yeah. that show up from time to time when there's conflict or issues or frustration or poor play or whatever it might be. It's it, a lot of it's that inner child, you know, that you were that was cultivated in you is tapping into those that play and that fun and and that's what I think a lot of the feminine can give us is is that enjoyment, the beauty, the sensuality, the the connection with our feelings that allows us to have that balance. Mm-hmm. And when you have that, it changes the way that you approach your relationships as well. You know, I mean, there's not a relationship that I have that I have had where I don't have just deep love for you know, for the person that I loved in that, in that situation, you know, and I'm really like grateful to still be friends and still have that feeling of like, yeah, like, fuck, I still fucking love you. You know? Yeah. I'm absolutely completely smitten and obsessed and in love with Vailana, but I still love you, you know, Whitney and Caitlin and all of the other people, obviously my relationship with Caitlin has transformed into a best friendship, but so many so much of that is just my real love for the feminine in general and i think that's something that's you know is an important message to share without saying that you have to tamper down any of your masculinity either you don't it's not a it's not a you know it's not a zero-sum game no i just think it's leaving room to be completed by the divine feminine you know i think we aren't we aren't whole as fully masculine, you know, just fucking alpha dogs, no pain, warriors. We have to have the poet side come in. Yeah. And the and the feelings and the vulnerability. Um, I think that's what we're we're probably missing in this world. That's why there is, you know, the masculine it can be toxic and it's the repression of the other part that allows us to fully be whole. Yeah. And then there's also like a real importance of community, tribe, the sense of like everybody's got each other's back, really, really. And both within like brotherhoods and in sisterhoods. But, uh, you know, I remember in, you know, and I'd love for you to share some more of the, because that was just night one of our three night ayahuasca. But I remember in, uh, I went through a really fucking brutal, ayahuasca journey and i've told that story on my podcast of blue but one part that i may not have told is there was a certain point where like i just needed a brother to not say anything but just to know that that they were there and so i like 
rolled myself in my bungled mariacion, seasick in the medicine, uh, dealing with all kinds of cosmic challenges with alien bugs and all kinds of things. And I just reached over and you got that kind of psychic message. And I just reached over and reached out my hand and you just clasped my hand. And then in that, you know, minute or two minutes or whatever we were there, it was like, okay, I got this. Like, I got this because my brother's got me. And then another night I reached over the other way because Vailana was on the other side and I reached over and I held my hand and it's like, oh, she's got me. Okay. And this is, you know, you're obviously there's some ideas about ayahuasca. Just fucking stay on your mat and deal with it. And like, I get it. I get it. I've done that. I've been there. I've done that. But that's not how life is. Life is ultimately where sometimes all you need is just someone to be like, I got you, man. I got you. Like, I'm here for you. That changes everything. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the highlights of night three was that experience with you and, and kind of feeling into, even before you reached out, like feeling what you were going through as I was sitting on my mat and basically sending you the message, I'm here if you need me. And then for you to reach out was so like, oh, yeah. I was tapped in. I was, that was my intuition saying, mm-hmm. be ready, you know, at all times for your brother. But night two, when I got to the, when I got down to the Maloka, I was in a way different headspace. I'd gone through the, the ego death. I'd sat with all those feelings and emotions of unworthiness and, and felt a deep, meaningful, unconditional love. And it was nice to have a day off in between to kind of start to, feel into that and, and integrate those deep lessons, which I'm still still integrating. But night two, I came to Matt. I said, you know what? If I have to meditate for five hours and asking my journey, I'm totally okay with it. I'm just completely surrendered. I have zero agenda. I'm not coming in with these like intentions or I'm going to you know have these incredible breakthroughs. It's just like whatever needs to come through can come through. And I had the most beautiful journey um, I could possibly imagine where – and and the funny part about that is it, you haven't told the story, but I had made up my mind on the way down the Maloka, I was going to do the the house brew. I wasn't going to do the dragon brew. Um, there were a couple options, and I decided, you know, I didn't journey the first night, really. I had this really tough ego death, so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to smooth sail it tonight. I'm going to take the house brew. I'm going to, you know, blast off. I'm going to be great. And... In the, in for the, so for people to know, there was a, there was a, Soltara has its own house brew of the medicine that they brew and typically serve that's, that they cultivate themselves. And then El Dragon brought his own brew from his own village and his own trees and his own prayers and his own, his own medicine. But night one, it was fairly diluted. And I went first, I drank first that second night. This is the story I was in. Yeah. 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 And it was, it was so thick. It was like. It was like I almost had to chew it. But I heard the noises. You, you went, oh. <laughs> well, yeah. When he started to pour it. I was well, like, everybody actually. So, and so, Jen and Valco. Yeah, yeah, Orlando, Jen, and Valco. So the, the facilitators, my Orlando, Jen, and Valco, they pour this particular brew and it just comes out so thick. And I even hear Orlando, which is uncharacteristic, go, oh. And then Jen and Valco go, oh. <laughs> and pour me that full cup. And I was like, oh, man, this one's gonna, this one's going to be potent. And then, and then thankfully, you left 
you drank and then you came right over to my mat and said, I don't know what you're thinking, but Orlando's brew is thick tonight. And so I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and you, in well, a moment, you were, well, first you were like, well, what should I do? And I was like, I don't know, man. I just got the message that I wanted to tell you that it's thick tonight. Yeah. And as I've tried to do, the signs and synchronicities are everywhere. And I said, okay, this is too random because I've really <laughs> been on the fence here. You know, I'm going in. And so I went in and, you know, by the time everybody had finished serving, because I was one of the first ones to drink, I started deep uh, on a journey where the ayahuasca uh, is usually described as a grandmother spirit. And I met her and walked with her through past, present, and future lives. And it was the most beautiful experience I could possibly imagine. I literally was able to ask her question after question about things that were on my mind and have the most beautiful journey I could possibly imagine uh, in that setting. And obviously, you know, the down there uh, at Soltara and with Maestro Orlando and with Jenna Valco and the other incredible facilitators and just the group of incredible humans we had there made for just an incredibly intentional and energetically connected environment, which I think really was important to set, uh, you know, the protection around the space as we did and the intention. And it allowed for so many of us to have deep and meaningful journeys. And for me, night two was enjoying the highest uh, bliss possible um, that I could even have imagined in my wildest dreams the night before or leading up to the trip. Um, so deeply grateful for that. Night three was not quite the same journey. I went from the ego death night one, incredible bliss night two, and then night three, again, came with a, a really open heart to whatever needed to come through and uh, went went on a journey to start and then uh, was told to go outside and do some uh, a ritual outside and then came back in the space and there was a lot of energy going around. And then as it being the last night when the ceremony ended, there was a lot of joy and hugs and, you know, Makad was leaving the middle of the night and there was a lot of stuff going on. And when all this was going on, I was going through it. I had the, you know, the end of the ego death, there's a rebirth. But mm -hmm. in my rebirth process, I was uh, overwhelmed by the incredible grief of my life as I knew it and the rebirth into a new perspective, a new timeline, a new trajectory. And as I've been working on, and you've been a good guide for this and so many other important people in my life, um, speaking into my life, I just sat with that. And it was very difficult. Um, the overwhelming sense of sadness and grief of what I was leaving behind. Mm -hmm. um, I just sat with that for hours, um, probably two hours, as I was begging grandmother to let me purge whatever was inside of me and needed to come out. And she said, not yet. Not yet, not yet my son. Hmm. There's more. And so I sat with that and didn't fight it and just surrendered to 
to feeling into the depth of all those beautiful emotions, incredible experiences from the past, heartbreak, failures, frustrations, deep, deep sadness. And then I perched at about 4.30 in the morning, finally, and laid there afterwards on my mat and then opened my eyes. And it felt like I was opening my eyes for the first time. And as the as the bat animal card instructs the rebirth the the death of the ego is followed by the rebirth and the integration of that is the sun is a sunrise so in costa rica the sunrise is very early and it was only a, about 45 minutes until the sun rose that morning mm-hmm. that beautiful morning at 5:15 and i sat there on my mat breathing in what felt like brand new oxygen into my lungs and enjoy the beauty and the mystery of this life and the howler monkeys mm-hmm. and their noises in the jungle and this and the sounds of life waking up yeah and that's what i felt like happened to me on that third day and and i felt uh, like i was kind of walking on air back up to the uh, mm-hmm. to the room it was very special i think people undervalue the importance of allowing yourself to grieve because every change is the death of something old to allow something new to be born. There is no, like the myth of the phoenix is accurate. Like you go to ash and the bird that once was, like even if the bird that emerges is better, it doesn't mean that the bird that once was isn't worth grieving. It doesn't mean that because the caterpillar becomes a butterfly that the butterfly is all better. And it's like, fuck that life is a caterpillar. <laughs> you know, like if that was in our mind, like it would be important to be like, man, caterpillar, caterpillar life was pretty cool. I was just crawling around, moving slow, eating leaves. Everything was real chill. And and even if it was sucked and it was like, man, I was getting picked off by birds. It was fucking gnarly. <laughs> you know, like whatever it was, it's still worth grieving, even in a bad relationship, quote, bad relationship. Right. You leave that and you're like, oh, well, on to something new and better. Okay, yes, true. And like grieve that which is that which is dying and that which is dead and that's the proper honoring that's the way to actually love all of life is to love what was even if it was riddled with distortion even if it was riddled with everything else is like send that love through your grief and through your tears and through through that gratitude and appreciation for what was which will allow you to appreciate that next thing that you're becoming because guess what that's just another fucking caterpillar it's an infinite fractal caterpillaring to the next butterfly you know that next butterfly is just the caterpillar to the next thing that you're becoming you know so and every step of the way just grieve what was and then allow that new thing and celebrate that new thing and know that one day you'll grieve that new thing and then celebrate the next thing and grieve that new thing and celebrate the next thing. Like this is the cycle. This is how you actually move in that upward spiral. And like you talk about a lot, it's it's not a full transcendence. It's an inclusion plus a transcendence. Mm-hmm. It's including the lessons you learned, the experiences you had, the joy, the sadness, the highs, the lows, as you transcend into a different perspective, mindset, awareness, consciousness. To leave it all behind is to truly leave part of you behind. Mm-hmm. I think that's the 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 catch twenty two there is you're 
you're, you're not leaving it actually behind. You're just reframing it mm-hmm. and putting a new perspective on it because you have to include those lessons and journeys and experiences with you in order to fully transcend into the next iteration of yourself. And judgment of those things as an exile is putting something in exile. And when you put any aspect of yourself, however iteration it was in exile, you're putting part of your current self in exile as well. And that's the liberation from exile of becoming whole. That's holistic healing is the including and transcending, like you said, with love and gratitude for all of those things. Even if it means you have a hard boundary in the discretion and you gotta, of course, like there's certain things that, you know, you'll, I always say like, it's fine to build a fucking wall, tall as the wall in Game of Thrones, you know, where it's like, this is the wall, nothing crosses, nothing crosses the wall, but it doesn't mean that you can't love everything else on the other side of that wall. Because as we expand our understanding of self to include the entirety of the cosmos, the substrate of of the force of life itself that moves through us and moves through the universe, then we have to love and respect all of those things, even if we say, and I'm on the other side of the wall. You know, and that's like that's the lesson. I think you can get lost in, well, just love everything and you'll get trampled. No. Mm-hmm. But you get your you have your thorns. You know, the rose has its thorns and its flower. The thorns say, don't trample me. But if you want to come smell my fragrant, perfumed garden, you're welcome. But if you trample me, you're going to get stabbed. You know, but it doesn't mean the rose is out there shooting thorns at other people and in this kind of barrier. It's just, it has its flower and its thorns. And we have our walls, but we can still have love on the other side. And I think, you know, one thing that's kind of been out there in the zeitgeist is people have been trying to pick apart your relationship with your family. And, you know, when we've talked about it in different ways, one thing I saw is that was your prayer every night was to find the ways to build the bridges back, you know, into this, into a more loving, resonant place with your family. But this is a co-created life and it's not only up to you but I can say for certain that I've seen and felt that deep from your heart, that intention to say like, I'm here and I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the healing. Yeah, it's definitely been a perspective shift uh, over the years. Um, and it starts with gratitude. You know, living a life where you count your blessings more than you think about what you don't have. And... The gratitude extends way back to the environment I was raised in, the morals I was I was taught as a young child, the conditioning that we all have, and the positives that came from it, and the lessons that I learned through it, and the patterns that I created that are both positive and also negative that I need to unwind. We all have these things, and many people have issues with family and deal with them in their own ways. Um, For me, I've always tried to deal with it quietly behind closed doors. That always hasn't been the case or hasn't been good enough for, you know, a lot of people who want to write about it or pick it apart or talk about it or even some things that, you know, my family has said or done over the years that's been public. But at the core, I have deep gratitude and love for the way I was raised, the lessons that I was taught, the environment I was in, the fact that my dad made it a point to make my and my brother's, you know, sporting events the number one priority. 
the fact that he was willing to take a chance and and go through you know the poverty that we that we experienced to make a better life for his kids by going back to school as a middle-aged man my age he went back to chiropractic college to try and give us a better life i have deep deep gratitude for that mm-hmm. and and really appreciate the sacrifice that were made on our behalf to give us a better life um so I, I do believe in healing and I believe in, in the possibility of, of reconciliation at some point. Um, but it's a different journey for all of us. And to, to judge on the outside about what should be or what it should look like or, or who's wrong and who's right is just a game I've never wanted to play and still don't want to play. Um, the most important thing is, is for me, deep love and gratitude for them and for the lessons I learned and for the way I was raised and hope for the future. Yeah. But who knows what that future is going to look like, when it's going to look like, when the time is going to come. But um, but I have no bitterness in my heart. I have no resentment. Um, I just have deep love and, and appreciation for the lessons that I learned and, and, uh, and the fact that, you know, if I hadn't been raised that way, all the good and all the frustrating. There's no way I'd be sitting here today. So to not have that perspective that that because of the things that I experienced, I turned out the way I did is 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 looking at the glasses as half empty, and I just won't do that. I look yeah. at it as as they were experiences that were important. I chose to to be in this family and and to to deal with. Um, everything that I dealt with, positive and and uh, and, and difficult, and um, I have deep love and gratitude for for them for their journeys, and uh, and hope for the future. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You know, there's a a saying like "You shall know a tree by its fruits," and when you recognize the the fruit of who you are from a family tree and have deep gratitude for that. You have to have gratitude for the tree, even the way that it was gnarled and even the way that it struggled to find water through a craggy, you know, rocky soil and the way it struggled to find light through a canopy of trees and everything that it provided. Like ultimately, you know, that gratitude of like, well, fuck, here it is, here's the fruit. You know, it got me here. And uh, and when you have that, I think it can allow you to love the whole tree without that sense of, and sure, you can have your preference of how it could have been, but you never know if that would have shifted something dramatically. And furthermore, I think our, you know, a recent friend for you, but a, a longer friend for me, Satsang Drew, uh, who's a great musician. He came and performed recently at Arcadia, which uh, which he came to, which is this epic festival we threw out in uh, out at Area 15 in Vegas with a lot of great artists and speakers. And he said people who are talking about you are giving a book review on a book they haven't read <laughs> and i was like fucking a yes. <laughs> fucking a giving a book but really though like yeah. whenever we're talking and judging and commenting on someone we're giving a book review on a book we haven't read like we don't know that person we haven't read that we can't possibly so it's just like just a little bit of like all right like I see this and I can have my opinions about this, but I haven't read that book. I don't know what that person's going through. I don't know what's actually what's actually really true underneath there. So it's all, you know, it's all nonsense to a certain degree. And insert anything into that. It's the same story. Insert ayahuasca into that, you know, people judging who haven't experienced it or where they have their own fears right. or 
or uh, you know ideas about what it is, the use of it, you know the dangers of it, whatever they might think about it. You're you're talking about something that you haven't experienced firsthand. It should be taken with a grain of salt. You mm-hmm. know, I think for me, part of the uh, reframing the perspective is something that we all go through. It's when we grow up, we look at our parents as perfect people. They can do absolutely no wrong. And that's why when something happens, it's almost more damaging because you're like, you're this perfect person. How could you do fill in the blank? How could you say fill in the blank? But as you get older, there's a reframing that goes on of your parents as flawed individuals. And just like me in my first night of ayahuasca and you in your iboga journey, there has to be some acknowledgement of the flawed nature in all of us. And it's only, I believe, in that realization and understanding of the flawed nature of humanity that we learn what unconditional love truly is. And that really allowed me to see not just the relationship with my family, but with friendships and lovers differently by not having this idealism that things should be a certain way or that perfection is perfection is a quality that has to exist in every uh, iteration, in every relationship. It's in the flaws and the scars and the thorns that we actually find the true beauty in each other, I believe. Yeah. It's in the mundane experiences, the simplicity, the last line of, uh, you know, of, of the office, which talks about there being beauty in normal things, mm-hmm. and beauty in the mundane, that we truly are able to, I think, love people and, and experiences unconditionally and that's you know that's what really helped me reframe not just my relationship with them but my relationship with football too I, you know i had some back and forth with the packers you know during an off season and at the core of it is realizing we're all flawed people and we all bring our own egos and ideas and and uh, experiences to the table but at the core there's opportunities to to see those flaws and to find unconditional love for those people, those experiences, those organizations, those families that have really molded us and shaped us into who we are. Yeah. Speaking about parents, it reminds me, and uh, I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about this on a show yet, but we were actually in Sedona and, you know, I had my own medicine journey, you know, right before everybody was arriving to, uh, to our ranch in Sedona. And I was like, deep in this introspective medicine and Vi was helping guide me through it. And uh, it was ketamine and cannabis journey, which I've talked about doing as kind of one of my own pathways to self-guided, you know, medicine journeys that I've really found a lot of virtue in. And, uh, and again, it's not a recommendation. I'm not saying go fucking do this yourself. This is for me, been a part of my path. And in this path, I realized that there was a part of me that wasn't allowing myself to fully enjoy every aspect of my life. And I was like, why? Like, why am I stopping myself from enjoying my life? And in the guidance, which was felt very clear, it said, well, it's because you have a grievance with God. And I was like, I have a grievance with God? Like, what do you mean? Like, I know God, I've felt God, I've felt what that feels like. And it's the most unbelievably beautiful feeling. Like I have a grievance with that, with that force, no fucking way. And I was like, yes, you do. And here's why 
the reason and the reason why I've stopped myself so first the reason why I stopped myself from enjoying is because God is a part of all of us we are participating in in the Godhead we are participating in love and manifestation we're participating in the entire cosmos we're participatory it's not God up in the clouds and us down in the dirt that's an old old myth and again this is my own belief system through all of my journeys but and in this I was denying God the pleasure of my enjoyment of life as me and denying the divine as me from enjoying life through me by holding myself back in certain instances doesn't mean that I've let that go and not had fully ecstatic unbelievable experiences but there was some part of me that was holding back and the reason was a grievance I was showing like okay God well I'm not going to fucking, I'm not going to give you this pleasure through me as me because I have, because I have a grievance with you. And when I tracked it, it wasn't a grievance with actually God or the divine, you know, God's a tough word, has a lot of meanings. But what it was, was that as I grew up, I had deified my parents and deified key people in my life. I'd placed godness onto other people and those people are fallible. Even my mom, who's the, one of the most beautiful divine emanations of humans I've ever known, she's still fallible. She's still just a person. So the more that you deify another person, they let you down. And then so in your own mind, then you have a grievance not just with that person. But and the only reason you have a grievance with that person is because you deified them in the first place right. and tried <laughs> to assume that they were going to be perfect. So then when they acted like a person, you're like, how, why hast thou forsaken me? You're like, I don't know. I'm a fucking person. Yeah. You know, like, like we we expect our parents and and those people who we deify to act like the divine. Well, they're doing their best. Yeah. And only the divine can act like the divine. Only the divine can look at your story and just say, tell me more. Like, that's what we want from our parents. We come home from school. It's not, how was your day at school? And meanwhile, they're doing their shit. It's like, how was your day at school? tell me more of your story. Like that's what we want. And that's what the divine actually is. It's like, tell me more of your story, but we don't get that. And so it was about pulling back all of that energy that I'd placed on all of these other avatars for what I thought the divine were and placing them back to where they belong, which is the actual divine. And then that allowed me to love my family more, those people who I'd you know deified in certain ways placed godness on top of them and say like oh no 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 that's all just people it's kathy and michael and and all of these different humans in my life and it can it allowed me to like heal that relationship with the divine and it was a significant moment you know it's a significant moment to do that to know that even me with all of my work in 41 years you know living and 23 years on the plant medicine path, I still didn't really realize this key insight, which was how much those initial imprints and the, and the ramifications of those can continually affect life. So, I mean, I think it's an invitation for all of us listening to see where we've placed godness on other people and then been upset with them for letting us down and really everybody's just doing their best and nobody's going to reach that. Nobody's going to reach that mark not even not ourselves and not anyone we're all just people walking each other home yeah like ramdas says um what what hits me when you say that is 
that when you heal the grievance with the divine, you were really healing yourself. Yeah. You know, you were healing that spot in you that that was let down, you know, that was disappointed, that was hurt, that was wounded. You know, as when we recognize the divine in us, you know, when we say we're giving up this grievance with God, we're letting go of this grudge we've held against ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're all very wary of recognizing the divine in ourselves because we've had far too many examples of people going, I am the divine and you aren't. Like the moment anybody says that, you got it fucking wrong. If you're like, I'm Jesus. I'm like, well, that means that you know that you're inside everybody. So you're just saying that you're one of everybody. Like that's really the teaching. But the moment someone tries to play better than another person, it's the antithesis of true spirituality, which understands the interbeing, the state of interbeing that we have with all beings and that there is no hierarchy from the highest purview. There's just not. And so I think we all get wary of acknowledging the divine as us, with us, within us, because of those people who've said, I am this, so listen to me, and you aren't. Like, nope. <laughs> like, that's not it. Like, it's, it's, it's cool to, know, to recognize the divine in you as long as you recognize the divine in everybody. That's the key. Which is kind of what Jesus was saying to Peter when Jesus is talking to them, the disciples, about his imminent ascension and and death and leaving the community that he'd established. When Peter's, you know, I'm paraphrasing, basically saying, what are we going to do when you're gone? Like, I want to do these things that you're doing. And he basically says, everything you've seen me do and more you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Now in the church, we often try and set that one aside. Anytime right. there's any, any, you know, conversation around the ability to do miraculous things to acknowledge the divine living in us i mean the whole tearing of the veil old testament and new testament was a a marker for us to go oh we don't need to go through anybody anymore to experience the divine the divine is in all of us Mm -hmm. there's no veil between us and the divine there's no separation it's the divine living in us and like you said an understanding that it's not just in me and not in you. Right. Not just in you right, and not in me. Right. It's in all of us. And when right. we start thinking the other way, that's when the God complex comes on and we start missing the entire There's point nothing of the whole more thing. gross in this life than people who flex their spirituality. Like of all the things to flex, like flex your Ferrari, flex your fucking new half a mil Hublot, like flex, like whatever you want to flex, like fucking, I respect that. You know, but when you start flexing your spirituality, that's just fucking gross. It's like, it's the one thing where, and again, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to work on judgment, but those are, that's the hardest thing for me to, for me to accept because it feels like it undermines like the real nature of the one, of the one who understands, you know, who really gets it. Yeah, I agree. I've seen it. I, I know, up, right? I grew up around that for a lot of my life. It's a it's a big problem. I think it's a an undercurrent of the problem that we see now is people who are creating small little vi- value hierarchies where they get to actually put somebody underneath them for some vector of judgment that they have, which you know you experienced with 
the vaccine issues, right? There was a whole group of people who got to be better than Aaron Rodgers, you know, for that period of time. And they don't, I don't think it's conscious that that they realize the impetus because might have of, been for some of them. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they're, they just, this deep desire that they're measuring themselves in relation to other people. And the more people that you can put underneath you, well, the higher you better are you on feel, the, yeah. the higher you are on that little spectrum on the whole pole of how good you are. So it's this mad scramble to put as many people underneath you as possible by tearing them down based on advantages they've had or based on decisions they've made or whatever. And sure, you can have your opinions and beliefs about that, but be very mindful of the slippery nature of trying to create a game where that makes you better than somebody else. And it's on both sides. You know, it's like both sides. Totally. There's yeah. there's anti-vaxxers and there's people who think then they'll start calling other people sheep and they're doing the same fucking thing. They're just putting themselves as better than other people as well. And exposing that, like bringing light to this desire that's creating so much polarity, which is fundamentally a desire of not knowing yourself truly and knowing yourself as the ego knows, which is only in a relative position. Like the ego only knows itself in relative position. It doesn't know itself as worthy of love just because it is, I am that's like a that's a driving force behind so much of what's happening in the divisiveness of our world yeah i mean it's ugly on both sides it really is yeah and i you know i could feel it when i came out and said what i said you know some of the interview requests it was like all the right you know it was like he's right. our champion now right and all the left was a, he's the enemy, uh, you know, which was, you know, people against the vax and people for the vax, basically. And I said, look, politics is a sham, first of all, I think. And I wouldn't do CNN just like I wouldn't do Fox News. Like, I have mm -hmm. no desire to be a part of this. I'm sharing a personal opinion based on my own health, what I think is best for my body. And you can disagree with it all you want. You can agree with and champion it, but I'm not saying it to gain favor with one side right. and, the part of, and, and hate from the other. I mean, naturally, my opinion became very polarizing because people feel strongly on both sides about it. But I hope at the bare minimum that there was conversation that could be had, civil conversation. And if you still disagree, then it's okay to disagree. But yeah. we've taken out, I think, in our society, a lot of that ability to have differing opinions because one has to be right and one has to be wrong. Yeah. I have to be smart and you have to be dumb. And it's this division that we see, the binary systems that are set up all over our society that keep us in opposition to each other. Mm -hmm. When instead the divine is calling us to connect, to recognize, to mirror each other and to reflect to each other the beauty inside of each other and not... The fact that I have to be right and you have to be wrong, or I have to be smart and you have to be an idiot, or I have to be, you know, the best and you have to be the worst. That doesn't advance us at all in society. Yeah. And that wasn't my and I apologize if that, you know, ever seemed like my my desire or my impetus behind it. It was I got COVID. I had to talk about it, you know, and I shared my opinion. You know, people thought that I was lying. I didn't lie to people. There was a million stories out there, you know, that I was an endangerment to society. And I, I, I'll definitely address that right now. Every single day, 
that you saw me, and you probably only saw me if I'm talking to the Green Bay people because that's where I was. You might have seen me in Barnes & Noble looking at a book or telling the people, the good people there what the next book club book was going to be so they could be stocked up or at the grocery store. Every single day you saw me, I had tested negative that morning. Every single day. Our protocol was for non-vaccinated players, every, time, every day before 9 a.m., you tested for COVID. So every single day that you saw me, I was COVID negative. Every single day. I didn't endanger anybody. You know, I take my health and the health of everybody around me very seriously. So I do want to dispel that rumor. And when I did test positive, I, I called our head trainer that morning. I said, I'm not feeling good. I went into the stadium. I tested. I sat in my car. I waited for the results like I did every other day. I tested positive. I went home. I started my protocol to feel better. And I didn't see anybody for 10 days. Yeah. That's what happened. Yeah, I mean, there's, and it's, I think, great that you got to clear that, clear that story, because there's so much, there was so much energy that kind of swelled up in all the stories, because people desperate to place you on one team, and desperate to, and by say team, I mean a political team or political side, and of course that happens with me and happens with so many other people, when really what we're asking is to transcend the game entirely, a game where no matter which side seems to be winning, the game itself is tearing our society and tearing our world apart. The moment we claim that we're on one side and we're against another side, we're denying the connection that we all have together and we need everybody to make it through this. We can't leave half of the world out of the fucking game and win the whole thing. We have to transcend from this finite battling each other into a new infinite perspective. And that can sometimes get you attacked from both sides, the holding that or accused of being middling. It's like, no, 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 no. I have my opinions and those opinions can be strong, but my reverence for both sides transcends this kind of base tribal, you're red, you're blue, you're this, you're that. No, like that can't work. We have to yeah, include some of the beliefs that are there and but then transcend them if we're going to come together as a world that can actually get us out of this kind of mess that we're steering ourselves into. We have to, we need everybody. You know, that's the, it's an old idea of permaculture. Like the solution is, comes from the problem. If the problem is people, then the solution is going to be people as well. Like how the people can actually transform and transform the world with all of the 8 billion that we have. Like we need, a, we need us all. I think that's what you do really well with some of your posts on Instagram that I see is is sharing opinions or articles or whatever and also sharing thoughts about how we don't the first emotion shouldn't be outrage. If we really want to connect the first emotion should be empathy. Eric Gatsi, um at Arcadia had a, a really, really good talk on uh, on the last day. And one thing that stuck with me was he talked about his own relationship with his family and how he connected with his mom only after years of back and forths when he went into her grief. And he talked about how instead of 
waiting with bated breath on how I can combat whatever points you're making, which I think we do as a society. Oh, you're done talking? Okay, now listen to what mm-hmm, I have to say. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of listening to understand and listening with empathy and going into that grief of that other person to fully understand what that person is going through. And I think in this, you know, in this culture around COVID, there's so much grief. Yeah. I mean, the patient care or lack of patient care with people dying by themselves and families being torn apart who are for and against the vaccine and and all the misinformation and good information that was out there at various times. Not many people probably were able to go into the grief of the other person. Yeah. And even myself at times and listen to the heart of the matter because as we know with arguments with our city and others, you know, it's never about the dishes because I always do the dishes, but it, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like there's an underlying issue, right? Yeah. And it's rarely ever the topical first part of the conversation. It's what is at the root of these issues, especially around COVID, you know, it can be fear. It can be death. It can be safety. It can be, uh, an ideology of greater intelligence or a greater understanding, or I'm an expert at this. You had experts on both sides and take the vax and Rogan had McCullough and Malone on his, you know, podcast who were, and numerous others who talked about, you know, some of the things to think about. And, but in order to fully, you know, understand people where they're coming from, a lot of times you have to go into that grief to see that person. And then once they're seen, like Eric talked about, it totally dissolved all the tension, the years of bitterness and frustration and back and forth and strife that was just kind of lingering in the air. Mm. And I think as if as a society, and I'm gonna try and lead by this to to find a way to go into that grief a little more often. Yeah. Allows and us read to see the, those people. And read some of the book before you judge the cover. Yeah. Like that's what listening is. It's just you don't get to read the whole book, but at least if you really take patiently, slowly, with stillness go into that person's story into their book and start reading the pages you start to fall in love with the character like any actor that acts well they we fall in love with them to a certain degree even if we hate them like there's a way that we're on the inside of their story and i think that's what listening really allows it allows us to step into the inside of their story and once you're on the the inside of the story the joker movie is a perfect example yeah you know, you it's, have the empathy and exactly. the grief that he dealt with of being bullied and misunderstood and dealing with a condition, you know, that he had to carry a card around to tell people, I'm not trying to laugh. I just have this issue I'm dealing with. I'm not trying to laugh at you. And just mm-hmm. you feel for that character. That's what the best actors do is they take you into the experience. Right. And it's all a, it's all a lesson that we can learn and apply. And it And it doesn't mean that when Joker's in his full flower of madness that Batman shouldn't come and fucking whip his ass. Like, yeah. like it, it, you can hold both. And that's the thing. Like there is the boundary and also the, the love and respect that comes from stepping inside the story and the necessary action that needs to be taken, you know, and, and like both are true. And I think this is an invitation to rewrite a lot of those patterns and conditionings and stories and, you know, I'm just, I'm honored and, and grateful to have a brother that I can walk through all of these different wild journeys and aspects of life with. Yeah, I feel the same way. You know, my life 
has taken a number of twists and turns and there's lessons and hardships and highs and lows and frustrations, but like truly meeting you and getting to connect with you has put me on a, on a way different trajectory. And at the core of it, deeper than the friendship that we share, which is so deep and meaningful to me, is a reconnection back to me that you modeled. And I think if there's, we all have people in our lives who can be compasses and anchors for us to remind us of who we really can be. And that's where you've been for me. So I just say, from the core of my being, brother, thank you. And thank you, my brother. Thank you. It's one of the one of the great gifts of life is to find like true, true friendship. I think a lot of I think a lot of energy is placed on your romantic relationships. You know, it's like that's the biggest fucking deal. But it overlooks like the real value of that really, really like deep friendships, the soul friendships that can come. And uh and that's another story that's important to rewrite. So here's the new stories, my brother. I appreciate it. I love you, man. Love you too. And I love all of you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Aaron Rodgers, everyone. I hope you're as excited about his upcoming season as I am. If you're part of the press or media and you're looking to reach out to the Aubrey Marcus team, you can reach out at hello at aubreymarcus.com. But I will let you know that Aaron has said what he wants to say so far on this podcast. So we probably won't be able to field any requests for further interviews with Aaron Rodgers. Also, just to reiterate from the advertisements at the beginning, we have Fit for Service opening up our Sedona retreats. Again, this is our donation-based coaching program at fitforservice.com. We also have the documentary El Dragon de la Selva, which talks about the shaman that Aaron and I worked with, my very first shaman. You can go to youtube.com slash Pod and check that out for free. And lastly, of course, if you're interested in all of the Onnit goods, go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and save 10%. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you next week.